but you're right, similar to Cuba. But you look at, you know, kids now, they're like literally the speed running beats in uh, Fruity Loops. And they can, they can cook something up that sounds pretty cool in like 40 seconds. You are 10 years old. Absolutely right, Nathan. I'm, I'm really frightened by that. Shall I just go on YouTube now? Get a speed run up, yeah. And get a speed yeah. run up. So what are we going to do? Speed run Soldier Boy, was it? But yeah, it's insane. I've seen people like, like put together like, um, yeah, Soldier Boy crank that. Okay. Uh, 23 seconds. There's a, there's a 16 Aaron second one. arrived. All right. Let me uh, just tell me when you're ready to go. Okay. I've got cranked out in 15 seconds. Okay. Let's go. Nice. So for everyone listening, all that's happening is someone on the screen on Fruit Loops is literally just clicking on like, oh, there you go. They put the steel drum in and they're copy and pasting, they're deleting stuff. And 14 seconds and 900 milliseconds. This kid just made Soldier Boy. Uh, sorry, no, uh, Crank That. He created Soldier Boy. He is Soldier Boy. I love that video. That is, oh, that is really well. impressive. This is what we're competing with. <laughs> Welcome to Having a Gas, the podcast that explores music, advertising, both, and occasionally neither. I'm Greg Owens, creative director at Gas Music, and I'll be your host and guide as we get through this thing called life. You'll also be hearing from the team here at Gas as you get a front row seat to the chaotic rhythm of life in this studio. In each episode, we'll also be speaking to industry experts, cutting edge innovators, and visionary producers. Enjoy the show. Put the reverb on. Oh, the reverb. Yeah, well, um, no. No, come on. Let's have a bit of reverb. Okay, well, a little, moment, bit, a little bit of reverb. You, know, you never have enough reverb. Okay, let's get a bit of this in here. And whose mic should we have put reverb on? Okay, Greg's start with Greg. me. Let's give you some reverb. Okay, go for it. Welcome to Having a Gas, the podcast that talks to some people in our own studio. This is episode two and today we are going to be talking about the Super Bowl commercials. There we go. A lot of pre-delay on that. Here we are, episode two. So here with me, Greg Owens, and this is what I sound like. Over there is Aaron Bentley. Hello. He is happy to be here. (laughs) Uh, Over at the desk producing the show is Ruri. That's me. There you go, Ruri. And to my left, we've got Nathan DeGiorgi, who is basically... Uh, jumping to do whatever is required of him. And so he's given us a running order for the show. And we're going to talk about the Super Bowl and other things besides. Uh, first, before I let everyone else start talking, before I let everyone know, we're going to be uh, hearing uh, my interview with Rory Sutherland at the second half of this episode. If you're here for that, we'll put a timestamp in the show notes for where that's going to turn up. Uh, Rory Sutherland is very funny because uh, there's a bit in the Rick Rubin's podcast, Tetragrammaton, uh, which I recommend everyone listens to, where he sounds a little bit like he gets possessed by a demon uh, to advertise McDonald's and say how good it is here. So you'll see what I mean. Because my children just stopped at a McDonald's on the way here. Okay. Now, why in God's name would you stop? Now, McDonald's is pretty good. Let's be honest. Okay. But why would you stop at a McDonald's? Well, the reason is... This is like, he, he just had to really quickly... But, you know, it's, it's really good. Okay, let's be honest. Uh, but, um, yeah, that's on Rick Rubin's podcast. The ghost I, uh, of McDonald's it, past. It's, you know, it's more like Ronald McDonald has a voodoo doll whenever gun. he stabs yeah, yeah. Rory. He's yeah. got a gun pointed at his yeah. head. Yeah. And it's like, but McDonald's is really good. Yeah. Uh, let's be honest. Okay. Yeah, let's, 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 let's hear that again one more time. Just stopped at a McDonald's on the way here. Okay, now... Why in God's name would you stop? Now, stab the doll. There we go. Okay. But why would you stop? <laughs> well, the reason. Just hear a gun cock in the background. 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> but nice. It's pretty good. Let's be honest. Okay. But uh, yeah, it's, it's great stuff. It's a great privilege to be able to talk to Rory because you're basically like a one-man audience for a public speaking engagement where it's all going to be interesting even if it doesn't necessarily stick together. So anyway, that's what's going on. Um, what is good in the world of sound and music, everyone? What's happening? That's, big question. That's a big question with few answers. Yeah. We went to our union meeting last week where Ooh. they talked about how there is no bespoke work ever for anyone so uh so get over it yeah that was the message no it wasn't that bleak but it was obviously it's because you're in a union but, uh, yes yeah, there you go yeah we're gonna find that out though aren't we because today we're gonna be watching some of the super bowl commercials well me and nathan are gonna be watching them and rory and Ara are gonna be listening and we're gonna be i don't know we're gonna figure it out as we go either commenting on how it sounds what's going on with the music but i'm betting most of it will be big expensive tracks yeah, we'll be play, commenting on the left side. We can play guess the ad. We can yeah. try and figure out from the audio what the advert is because it should be clear, right? Yeah, should be obvious. Okay, uh, Nathan, some trivia, some stats about the Super Bowl. So uh, we we discussed this when we tried to do a dry run of this podcast last week, but so now you're the only one who doesn't know this. So thirty seconds of ad time of advertising space on the Super Bowl. How much does it cost? This year, twenty twenty four. If you get this right, I'll give you a shiny penny, shiny pea. The- 30 seconds. 30 seconds. $20 million. It's not bad. It's actually, uh, yeah, it's, it's less than that, it's, but it's still, it's $7 million for 30 seconds, which, and a lot of these ads are 90. So just for the space, they're paying 21 mil. Whew. Yeah. Just for the opportunity. Yeah, the, right. the Michael Cera one, that's like over two minutes, isn't it? It's yeah. really long. So you're looking at a $30 million advert. Expensive, that. Just for the space, not even for the talent. With Michael Cera would have been like, what, million? Something like that. Uh, I mean, and the, yeah. and the rest. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, all right. Um, do you want to get straight into that? Should we? I think we should just crack on. Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. Because um, also, got... someone is leaning very closely to their mic while breathing. Is it Aaron? Move back. <laughs> is that good? It's brilliant. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. So number one, if they say the brand name, I guess it disqualifies it. But let's see what happens. Here we go. Nice ride. It's the real deal, 100% electric. It's the real deal. Yeah. Thank you. Of course, enjoy your coffee. Careful, it's hot. Your dog's so cute. Yeah. Ooh, so adorable, wow. We both know it's the man makes the clothes. You know, you look nice. Okay, we're done. Hello, Mr. Walken. Does this table work for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did someone say yeah? Don't you got somewhere to be? Yeah. <laughs> oh. There's only one Christopher Walken and only one ultimate driving machine. The rest are just imitations. Come on. It's Mercedes, isn't it? Anyone else? Oh, it's like, oh. If I, uh, Ford. I, I can, I, I've seen it. I can see it. So, <laughs> it was uh, like, I can see the screen. Yeah, I, can, I can tell you the answer. Oh, we tell us, Nathan. BMW. BMW. Uh, well, it's close enough for Mercedes. BMW, same thing. Um, but I have actually seen that advert. I just forgot who it was for. Yeah. I just, I just remembered the Christopher Walken. It's like, for oh, fighters. Wow. That was a very bad impression. Okay. Do it again. All right. All right. Please turn the output down. Yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, but you're basically, a, a lot of these commercials, I'm not letting you do it again, Rory. A lot of these commercials, it is 
expensive person, expensive music. That's the idea, really, isn't it? Like Super Bowl is, that's what you do. Yes, money and money. Make and money. money. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounded, money. it was quite funny. It made me chuckle. What was that I track? Like the left side. Thank you. Oh, that's a very good trivia question. Express yourself. By whom? Pharrell? No, it's way older than that. It, it, there's an NWA track called Express Yourself. I don't know if it's It's been one. around a long time. It's been used on a lot of ads, and I think that might be the only times I've heard it in real life. It's not an NWA track, though, is it? No, it's old. It'll be from the 60s, right? Oh, uh, performed by Charles Wright and the... Uh, Charles the, Wright and the, the Wright Brothers. 103rd Street Rhythm Band. Okay. What was really adorable, no one else saw that, is Rory just looked around the room to see if anyone laughed at the joke. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, uh, they actually did laugh. What was the joke? I didn't even know. They said the Wright brothers, like the plane, <laughs> planes. I just saw the head just kind of go, hey guys, yeah, yeah, yeah you like that one? But, um, but they, they, they did like it. It's, but the th one, of the, one of the skills of the supervisor is supposed to be, if that's, you know, a really famous, really expensive track, you're supposed to be able to kind of eyeball one that has the same energy, but not quite. And you know, 1612 by Wolfpack. The Christopher Nolan film about Dunkirk. Yeah, 1612. <laughs> I thought you were just like getting the name of 1812 by Tchaikovsky wrong. <laughs> Come on. There's a lot of shit date related jokes coming out of this. Um, yeah, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea is you're a supervisor. You're supposed to be able to like, okay, this is like that one, but it's more modern. It's bigger. It's thicker. It's a bit cooler, you know. Yeah, Express Yourself, I've heard on loads of ads. I've seen it recently on an ad. It's not that It's not that exciting. To be fair, I feel like for that ever, the focus wasn't the music. It was Christopher Walken. Yeah, but they've also used it for the copy, right? Express Yourself is, is you know, it runs in parallel with the idea of the advert, right? Yeah. They, they, these other brands aren't expressing themselves, and that's why they'll have picked it. I or, suppose, yeah, you, you're, you're the only one. Yeah. The, the thing is, for those of us, if you aren't in advertising, I don't know why you'd be listening to this, but if you aren't, <laughs> the, the kind of rule is, even if it do, even before you start... Oh, very good. Oh, how about it, How about it, Even if it doesn't make sense, as long as you can vaguely pass it off as making sense, then you can't. It's like... Oh, yeah, express yourself because, you know, they're all expressing themselves by doing an impression of Christopher Yeah, Walker. exactly. It, it's a reach, isn't it? But that's why they would have picked that yeah. music, surely. I think so. Um, all right, on to the next one. Uh, I can't remember if we watched this last week, so... Uh, Possibly. We'll see. It's me, America's sweetheart, and I just love having a blast. Oh. Do Baja blast. Kids party? I think it's a Mountain Dew Nailed it straight away. Brilliant. Is that Ice Spice or is that someone Fanta. else? Who well, is, I, I Spice did a different one, didn't you? I thought it was, what's her name? Aubrey Plaza. Really? Later. I was going to say uh, Jenna Ortega, which is basically, they're very similar. They look similar. But no, I was going to say like they're offshoots personality-wise and like the shows they play, they're like offshoots of the they same thing. They do look thing. quite similar, it's the fringe. I need a buzzer to stop you talking. Right, okay. It's a good thing you don't have one, and I can just pull you the You can plug just up. turn my mic off. Yeah. yeah. That that was that was dark, that was like a life support. I, just, I can just pull the plug. <laughs> all right, all right, Let's moving go. on, moving on. Reports of flying saucers are nothing new. These are routine sightings, not isolated events. That sounds really good. They're spinning. There's a whole swarm of them. Oh my god. They're all against the wind. All against the wind. Oh, look at this. That's 110, 150. 
There was an historic hearing today on Capitol Hill and an unprecedented bipartisan push for UFO transparency. Nathan, is this, do you, you recognise this? Is this a known piece of classical? I, I don't, I don't know. Mm. Is this real horns as well? Sounds like yeah, it. it. Does sounds amazing. It's definitely weird for everyone who can't see it. Sounds great. The, the brass sound really good. I'm going to be interested to know what everyone thinks this is. We must make immediate oh, there's Martin Scorsese. He's not talking. I told you to take Broadway. This always happens. There's aliens in the sky. Ooh. Not a Scooby on that. Um, um, what do you mean, not a Scooby? You've just watched the app. Oh. I didn't watch it. I was looking away. Okay. <laughs> so you're going to now guess it correctly and be like, I wasn't looking. I didn't watch it. Sure My eyes were closed. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, oh. That's it. The ad was directed by Martin Scorsese. Is it? Okay. So um, what theme of product is it? Whoa, 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 whoa. You can guess what FEMA product it is. Uh, well, okay, well, let me read you the New York Times description of please, this advert. Please do that. Okay. Aliens, a theme in this year's ad, come to Earth and can't get our attention until they figure out how to get on the internet, which is uh, similar to the Beyonce ad. It is handsomely directed by Martin Scorsese, working with the Barbie cinematographer, oh, Rodrigo Prieto, though it's not at all clear what's being advertised. It's another mobile network, isn't it? That's a good guess. Uh, the last, the one we listened to last time, was that Verizon? Or uh, I've honestly fucking like no idea. I mean, Wi-Fi provider is the obvious guess, isn't it? Just but. like a pay rise and awards, you won't get it. Um, <laughs> uh, is it okay? So it's it's not a broadband or internet or phone. Pro it's not a network. They have it to does get connected. They don't provide a service like that. No. Oh, is it like um? Is it a social media platform? Ooh, is that's a good like guess. A logistics? No, no. Uh, is it like for Uber or something? No. Hold on. So, is it is it an online thing? Yeah. Okay. Mm. Um. Yeah, it's an online thing. What the fuck is the point in that advert if we really can't guess it? We just listened to a minute of it. I mean, it sounded nice. It sounded beautiful. Yeah, it was really I mean, nice. The left side sounded good. And Della paid a. A hefty dollar okay. for Scorsese and the ad space was $21 million as well. We are not going anywhere until we figure this out. I mean, we are talking about it, to be fair. Yeah. So. Can we have a hint? Is it an Last American hint. company? Yep. Well, yeah. The, um, we don't need a hint. We're do, this. do they make things? No. You make things with them. Oh, so Lego. Is it? No, no. It's Good. Lego's not American. I know. Um, or I think they call it Legos, the actual, the Danish people. Make, you make things with them. Yeah. Is it like a online thing you make stuff with? It's like a website thing. It's like Wix or something. Oh, Wix or Squarespace. We nailed it after several minutes of guessing, so, um, which in Super Bowl time would have cost us twenty okay, million dollars. Considering Squarespace is the go-to advertiser on every single podcast, every ever single created. podcast ever. If they want to sponsor us, that's absolutely fine. Okay. And speaking of sponsors. 
This episode of Having a Gas is brought to you by Eventide Audio. Eventide are a producer of great creative plugins. They are useful for mixing, but we really like using them here at Gas Music for creative purposes when we're producing and when we're treating our instruments. So I'm going to give you an example of what that sounds like. This is my voice, like normal. This is my voice with the H3000. I've let Rory decide what preset is going to be used to make this sound good. And this is my voice with the H910 Dual Harmonizer. So you can see how much fun it's possible to have with it. So go to Eventide Audio and get some great stuff from them. All right, back to the podcast. What is the point in that Super Bowl ad? Martin Scorsese expensive. What did aliens have to do with Squarespace? Yeah, and what? how did the, did the aliens make a website then in that advert, like visually? No, the idea is no one noticed the aliens because they were all looking at their phones because they're all on the internet. That's just kind of dark. What's that got to do with Squarespace? Again, it's like reaching. It's like, well, you're on the internet. That's fucking rubbish. All right, let's have a look at this one. <laughs> YouTube was muted that time. And up on my YouTube recommendations is Gandalf sacks, but every time he nods, it gets faster. That's like the video that me and Aaron keep putting on, the Yoshi, uh, one hour of Yoshi, and it's just silence. But occasionally he'll go, I, I know it was because even though I was in it, so I didn't appreciate it, it was a full-blown sitcom moment where yesterday I went into Aaron having like the stress of my life about like, it's like, and we need to do this and we're not doing this and it's rubbish. And then just Yoshi went, <laughs> it was brilliant. Bear in mind, it only happens three times in an hour. It really was no, no. comedic timing. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think it was only nine. No, I think it was nine times because someone in the YouTube comments did put the time. They time stopped. We are going to get Aaron a buzzer. Okay. Yeah. Next. For many people with blindness or low vision, there hasn't always been an easy way to capture daily life. One face cropped. Move your phone down. One face in frame. Hold for photo. Dinner for one. Hello. One face and one head in frame. Look who's here. <laughs> All right. Two faces in frame. Happy birthday. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Good morning. Two faces. I'll show you at the end. Stay in the new place. Two faces. Two faces. Getting that one. Two faces in frame. Three faces in frame. Hold for photo. <laughs> oh my marriage. gosh. Capture life. <laughs> no matter how you experience it. Guided frame only on Google Pixel. Yeah, okay. I would have guessed a phone, so that's I, cool. I actually did quite like the sound design of that one. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is, it does show, though, even doing this shows you how few of them even say their own like brand name and stuff. Yeah, which has got me wondering. What about if you're visually impaired? What's the point? Yeah. Oh, of like of these ads if you are visually impaired yeah because you have no idea what's going on it's actually a really good point because that's literally what that ad was saying it's like yeah. if you're visually impaired you can use the google pixel sb and that kind of made sense yeah like you know i got the gist of the ad because I, you couldn't see it it still made sense i guessed it i was like okay they're taking pictures uh can't get everyone in frame it's telling you that you need to adjust the camera and then at the end it says the product it's like that ad was very sensible and logical I mean, it made sense to me having not seen it half of these i've fucking not got a clue what's going on i've often wondered what it'd be like if we do this blind test of like put it on and see if you can tell what it is without looking. So we'll do, I think, a couple more. I don't think you should do this. Last year she came to my work. Now I gotta show her what I can do. He's here. Affleck on the track. What up, Brooks? For your consideration, here 
Massacre! The Dumb Keys! Touchdown Tommy on them keys! Player coach. Got it. I'm open. And needs no introduction, my partner! Sometimes it's really hard to be your friend. You said you were gonna support me. Dumb Keys! Don't, don't go away. My heart, why you dunking me, girl? Why you dunking me? Keys! My heart. How do you like them donuts? I'm so sorry. You had to see it, but I forgive you. Lay us on the track. Are we gonna be on the album? We talked about this. Let's go. You're blinded by them pinstripes. Wrap it up. Here goes Babe Ruth. Tom, you can stay. You remember when I told you I'd do anything for you? This is anything. Chill. They're naming a drink after us. All right. I know who that's for. I'm gonna go on a limb. Uh, and yeah, go on, Rory. Well, uh, I'll say the first part if you say the second part. Uh, you say the second part first, and I'll say okay, the first part. Okay, Donut. Duncan. Yeah. Yes. It was for Dunkin' Donuts. I'm still trying to. I'm trying to work out what on earth just happened in yeah, that, no, in that video. I have no idea. I'll be honest. I was watching it and it was hard. So, uh, the celebrity, the celebrities in it. Anyone know? I kind of recognised voices, but couldn't figure it out. Who was it? So we had Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Tom Brady, Jack Harlow, Jennifer Lopez, and Fat Joe. It's crazy. That is a wage bill for actors of that about fifty million dollars. Yeah, yeah, and easily. I didn't recognize a single one of them. Right. I kind of yeah, they they sounded familiar, but I wouldn't know. They were they were they were they were still punning on Goodwill Hunting. You said how do yeah, you like yeah. them donuts? Yeah, yeah. Which is weird. It's another. I, I'm always trying to figure out like where's the line drawn? Where's the end of? Where's like the end of culture? You know, because Goodwill Hunting, 1997, still quotable. Make it so. Yeah, I will make it so. Yeah, yeah. It's almost 30 years old. Yeah. Um, like what? What's really quotable from like movies for the last fifteen years? Uh, I am a Barbie doll. It, uh, they probably um, said that at some point in the I film. Become Barbie girl. Now it's, I become uh, Barbie. I'm, I'm morbing. Uh, it's morbing time. It's no, time. Joker. Nathan brings up a good point. It was kind of memey, but not quotable. Yeah, the end of the Dark Knight. People quoted for ages. Honestly, the, the yeah. <laughs> What are you saying, Aaron? It, was, it had more content in it. The, I was, well, I was about to say, you know, there's that meme that was going around about, you know, how before memes, people used to sit in a circle and just quote Anchorman at each other. Yes. But that's a, that's an old film as well. 2005? Yeah, oh it's like God. almost 20 years old. <gasps> I was in year seven. Hunger Games, I volunteer as tributes. Mm, also man. pretty old now. Well, Over, know, it's what, 12? 12, 12 years that's old, 13 years interesting old. Game. It's Hunger Games like the beginning of Gen Z film culture. Uh, and then I have no clue. I mean, it was dystopian teen dystopian fiction was huge back then. The first movie like, I remember watching was Blues Brothers. Uh, Divergent. Yeah. The 1980s one on VHS. We're going to create an AI machine that can detect whether what Rory's saying needs to be on mic or it's not. It's all getting cut. I mean, yeah, obviously everyone's been quoting uh, the the one Oppenheimer line that I've become deaf. Thing, but that he said that yeah, a long time ago. That's not from the movie, that's from the Trinity test. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that's, that's not very new, is it? Um, albeit not a lot of people really knew that story before the film. Um, the death of the movie quote is, is, is great. It's a great oh, topic. The classic one, uh, Steve Buscemi. Um, do you think God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created? That was in like a like a random shit comedy from the noughties, nope. wasn't it? What film was it? That's from Spy Kids. Spy Kids, that's what That's from yeah. Spy Kids yeah. too. Yeah. I saw those movies when I was about Rory's age. That's terrible. Um, right, should we have one more ad? Yeah, let's one do more. it. I'm just trying to pick one, to be honest, because I'm, I'm trying to pick a brand you will know. Uh, because like, I don't think you would know about stock cold brew. That's my favorite no, cold no. brew. All right. What's Oh, I've got a good one. Okay, here we go. This here, this is Pluto TV country. 
here on this farm, we grow couch potatoes. <laughs> couch potatoes grow big and strong here, fed with the finest content for Pluto TV. Thousands of TV shows and movies for free. You just open the app, something great will be on. I love Star Trek. Uh, I love romance, but I also love murder. I like romantic murders. SpongeBob SquarePants. Cats 24-7 channel. I love Ink Master. Pluto TV just gets me. I like anything where a hot person throws a glass of wine at another hot person. <laughs> We're living in a golden age of television. Looks like that Pluto TV romance channel's got those taters right in their feelings. Got you too, huh? You just can't beat that type of on-screen chemistry. Oh, this country was raised on TV. TV that was easy. TV that was free. Pluto TV is TV the way it's supposed to be. All right. So, uh, unfortunately, but like, you know, appropriately, that was absolutely peppered with the brand name. Yeah. You heard it, didn't you, Aaron? Mm-hmm. Why uh, have you gone quiet? Netflix. I'm just thinking. Was it Pluto TV? The person at the start of the ad kind of sounded like Nathan Fillion. Okay, one more Super Bowl ad, and then we'll wrap this thing up, and we'll go to Rory Sutherland uh, for some chit-chat about the world we live in. So let me see what I'm going to pick. What's it going to be? Hi. We're good to go. I'm Laura Dern. Is me, J-Hook. Everyone is auditioning to get T-Mobile Magenta status and get treated like a VIP. I can't see you. Hi, I'm Bradley Cooper. Step aside, phone boy! With magenta status, there's no need it's to fill up. Bum boy. Boy. I don't think you can say that anymore. It did sound like that, didn't it? It's called a bum boy. Phone boy with magenta status. Oh I can't see you. Oh my god. Hi, I'm Bradley Cooper. Step aside, phone boy! With phone boy. Status, there's no need to oh. fill up when you drop phone boy. I don't think the Americans would have uh, been because if that if that was anywhere near a UK advertising agency, be like, hang on, that sounds far too similar to Bumble. Absolutely, you're right. Okay, we're moving on because yeah. we know what that yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, uh, was it just some shitty T-Mobile? Ad? It was, and there's about five of them. Unfortunately, I keep skipping past them. They have spent way too much money on talent this year. That Jason Momoa is in one of them. All right, I'm trying to look for one that we haven't actually already seen and that you will actually know. Uh, all right, let's check this. This might, this might, this might, this might be good. This is a. $14 million ad. Come on. All major highways are currently closed. You've got to be kidding me. What do you want to do? Hey. All right. Let's do it the old school way. Let's go. I actually love this song. Oh I love this God. song. I like this song. Can I pet that dog? Can I pet that dog? Can't see anything. <laughs> Look! I love that piano. Good job, Bubba. Sorry I'm late. Any ideas? Is it a couldn't horse riding be, advert? I couldn't even begin to guess. It's, it's clearly some old American. It's like Old Spice or something. Is it a legacy brand? It, ha- it not, must be an, an American brand legacy brand. Nathan's trying not to look at the screen. He might have done it by accident. All right, keep going. Keep going. Is it a car brand? Not a car brand. So we're thinking, you know, what's that rustic Americana? I know. Mm. So, is it a drink? Uh-huh. What? Did you say it was the hair gel? You say I said Old Spice. Old Is it not? Not Old Spice. Ice Spice. Was it like, like a cream or something like that? Oh, I asked if it was a drink. It is. Okay. It's a drink. Is it a whiskey? 
bad. Jack do they do have alcohol during the Super Bowl? I don't know. Well, I mean, they obviously we do. We haven't seen any, though. Coca-Cola. Right? It's not Coca-Cola. Spronk. It's not Spronk. Sprite. Bepis. It's not Bepis. Uh, Seven up. Dr. Peebor. It is alcoholic. Oh, okay. Oh. Well, they do do alcoholic beverages. Is it a beer? Bud Light? Or Bud. Good shout. In Budweiser. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, fuck you, Rory. Yeah. I stole your idea. <laughs> he stole victory <laughs> from the jaws. Rory said Wix defeat. earlier as well, and I came with, with Squares. Oh, Rory. Yeah, Rory keeps... The post. They like keep getting the category, knows. and then someone else gets the fucking victory. Yeah. That's the point. I get everyone... I just move everyone's ideas forward. Does it know? count as an assist? Yes. This counts as kill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was an assist. Okay. All right. All right. So lots of um, lots of Super Bowl stuff. We're going to go on to Rory. Not this Rory. We're going to go on to Rory Sutherland in a minute. One more thing I just wanted to observe while we were here is we were talking, you know, last time about best soundtrack and we were like, I, I think... I probably needed to justify certainly what I was saying uh, because we kind of dunked a little bit on Oppenheimer, uh, which again is a very well put together soundtrack. But we're just going to listen to the bit that Aaron described as going to which is like, it's like it's interesting and original. And then I think it's not long later, it basically becomes a, a normal Chris Nolan soundtrack, you know, big brass. And so let's just listen uh, to that so you can see what I mean. It's like so far so good. And then once we get past probably like the 40 second mark, it's pretty Hans Zimmery. Yeah, it's, it's sort still of cool. Like, it sounds a lot more similar to Interstellar's soundtrack it's, at that point. It's good, but I think we're all, yeah, singing from the hymn sheet of, it sounds like it, it it's, I, I don't like saying this because it's not like I could do it better, but it sounds like a Hans Zimmer reference was presented and saying, can we be in this world-ish? Yeah, I'm, I'm very... Obviously, you touched on it, and possibly I'm more sensitive to this. I don't want to slag that. I could not do that. No. Um, you know, it's really, I think oh. it's really, really good. I think it's a good soundtrack. What I'm saying is, everyone's kind of going, it's got to get the Oscar because it's like the best soundtrack that's happened all year. And I'm going to put on a bit of poor things, which I think is more original. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Sounds, it just plays a bit more. It just makes me happy to hear it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's great. It's really pointed. And that's it. And there's so much space and it's just nice. It seems distill Bella Baxter's... Bella Baxter's character seems to be distilled quite intimately into the score here. And it's interesting, that. The warmth right. that's applied. What, like the pitch bend? Yeah. yeah. So it sort of mimics her movements, right? I don't know. I've not seen the movie. It also sounds... It's trying, like, it sounds like it's emulating, emulating a very analog pitch bend. It sounds like tape. Uh, yeah, or to me, it sounds like a like an actual 80s synth, you know, but that yeah. harp sounds real, which is great. Yeah. So for me, it's not that Oppenheimer's bad. It's that I think it may be being carried to the awards by the strength of the film and the fact that that's scooping all the awards. Because I'm like, that's pretty... I, you, I couldn't tell you that that's not more original, you know? Yeah, I, if I had to listen... Because the thing is with the Oppenheimer score, I listen to it and I think of the scenes in which that music came from. Right. Uh, and that's cool because together they are brilliant. Um, whereas I haven't actually seen that film yet, but I've heard the music and that music 
I enjoy in isolation. I don't need the film. That music's really good. Okay. But what? But that raises a question, right? It's like, well, what is the point of the best music in the Oscars or BAFTAs or whatever? Is it is it best music? Is it in a sole entity, yeah, or is it, it or is it best pairing of music and visuals? And I don't actually know what the is it someone must have thought about this. Isolating the tra- like listen to the track isolated. I mean, because some movie soundtracks. I would say I just don't want to listen to if I was listening to music. But they're brilliant with the visuals. Yeah. Mm. I would say that about Oppenheimer. I'm not going to sit around and listen to the Oppenheimer score personally, but when that split in the atom music, I, I think really well represents the visuals in which it's trying the to... The tension. Yeah. The driving the tension. tension. You know, it's, I think I've heard Ludwig talk about it. There might be like 20 tempo shifts in that in that queue. And uh, it, it, you know the harmony's a little interesting, um, which is cool. Um, I'm not going to go into the details because it's boring for mm. people. But... Um, yeah, it, it, it raises the question: What is the what is what uh, what is the point in the category? All right, all right. Let's keep this conversation going throughout the year. Um, we're going to wrap it up in a second. We haven't designed or had time for designing any items this time. We don't have a quiz. We don't have a story from either Nathan or Ruri. Uh, anything to throw in there, Nathan? Uh, just on the previous point, I, maybe you know the the film uh, composition landscape has become more, more textural rather than um, you know melodic. Um, and one thing you can say for sure about the classic John Williams scores, you know, hugely melodic, mm-hmm. you know, notated on pen and paper at the piano. There's a, yep. there's a, there's a clip of him doing exactly that or doing the, doing the rounds on YouTube. Yep. Clearly standalone entities uh, outside of the film and detached yes. from the film. And perhaps it's possible that the uh, the reason that the soundtracks like the Oppenheimer one are less sort of standalone or you're less likely to enjoy them outside of the uh, outside of the mm-hmm. film is because they are deeply embedded with uh, the textual. They don't outshine the film. the film, the viewing experience while you're in the cinema, hmm. um, you know, p- playing into the, the, the great sound systems as well that the cinema, All right. the cinema enjoys. Well, I've got one more for you on that exact point, Nathan. It's a James Bond point, and this is the one we're going to go okay. out on. Uh, this is from James Bond's greatest soundtrack. It's on Her Majesty's oh, agreed, Secret Service. Agreed. And I want to show you something about how well music was edited for soundtrack albums in the past, as in not necessarily going perfectly with the image, but how is this listening experience? So I'm going to skip to the end of the string arrangement of We Have All the Time in the World. So, amazing, John Barry. <laughs> yeah. It's just so good. When you listen to this on its own, for sure. Now, let's go on a little bit. Ah, no, you can't skip No way, I'm doing it for a reason. Oh, good. All right, so let's just bask in the glory of this. And then you get to hear where this track goes on the soundtrack album. No, I'm at the wrong bit. It is all perfect though, isn't it? There's, there's not a pip of VST anywhere to be seen. Thank yeah. God, and long may those days come back because it's terrible. Okay, here we go. Is it segue? Yeah. Peaceful.
Batman is back! It's James Bond again. Uh, no spoilers, but that last scene just hits like an absolute truck. It really well, does. I mean, the song hits like an absolute truck. <laughs> <laughs> you skipped just a random um, seg uh, section of the Skyfall soundtrack by Thomas Newman. Good point. I'm yep. sure it sounds a lot more. Skyfall. It's all. We, we, we've done this. It's. A, We've done the game of just put any Hans Zimmer score on and guess what film it's from in the last 10 years. It's, it is Mission Impossible. Let's do... Um, can't do it. Can't guess. No Time to Die. It's Hans not bringing up the album. It's bringing Impossible. up the Billie Eilish one. All right. No Time to Die. Let's, what, let's see what this is. Uh, sure. This all just percussion and big... Incidentally, this uh, soundtrack does... There we go. This could be from any action yeah. film of the last 20 years. So it goes back to your point about textures before, Nathan. Everything is more textural, and we, we know why. That's because you can have VO at any point. We can talk over this, and I, I can hear everything you're saying. Could do that with a John Williams cue. You've got to be ready just to drop the cue on the edit, yeah. and it just goes where well, it goes. You know, we've seen from the pure numbers, there's probably two hours of music in No Time to Die. You yeah. know, in ET, there's probably about 40. I mean, we probably should have said we fit, you, you guys finished the first ever dub. Uh, no, no, sorry, music mix for a film score today. And oh, all, yes. all of it, you just dropped straight onto the film, and you can just hear dialogue over it. Like that's yeah, and that, that's, that was a big part of the mix process. And again we'll get into too, we'll get in too deep now if we start going into that when Rory's trying to do a French exit well no it's not even that it's just a, I've got terrified because that happened what does that mean uh, it's not deleted everything has uh, it so the clip image has disappeared it's only showing from like a couple minutes ago it, it still says we've been recording this entire time so i'm assuming that when i pause it will be there okay so. well we're gonna hope we're gonna pray we're gonna send the day away uh thanks for listening everyone rory sutherland is coming up now and we will see you next month today i'm having a gas with rory sutherland vice chairman of ogilvy we're going to talk about sonic branding sludge content behavioral economics placebos and much more than that i hope you like it so uh, for those who are just joining us, you can probably tell that I'm here with uh, Roderick Rory Sutherland, uh, one of the most famous people in advertising. And um, you know our mutual friend, Paul Burke. Of course. And he said... Uh, He's I mean, magnificent, Paul Burke. Wonderful, isn't he? He's very fast yep. and very honest. Mm. And he said, um, Rory Stewart is actually called Roderick, and I was hoping he'd become prime minister, because then we'd have a prime minister called Rod Stewart. So. Ah, no, interestingly, I didn't know this. Um, I'm christened Roderick, mm -hmm. um, and... My brother, who was 18 months older than me, couldn't really say Roderick, so he said something. And my grandmother said, oh, you should call him Rory, which I've been known by everybody, apart from my passport and my driving licence. Yeah. Uh, I've had I've been known as Rory ever since. And I didn't know until I met Rod, uh, Roderick stroke Rory Stewart. Yeah. I didn't know that this was actually a formal abbreviation. Yeah. I thought it was just an alternative name. Yeah. But in Scotland, Rory is an abbreviation for Roderick. Wow. Um, weirdly. Um, and so likewise, yes, you're right. Rod Stewart would have been the uh, prime minister. So uh, the, today, uh, Rory, we do have uh, on instruction of Anna for the audience. Anna is the sort of the what, what, which hemisphere uh, is the organized one, the right or the left? Uh, the, the, the left is the uh, the ably retentive one. Yeah. Right. So Anna's your left hemisphere. You get yes, the kind that's of walking right. right hemisphere. So what that means is uh, <laughs> she's going to come in and get Ian McGilchrist will be uh, turning uh, sure. turning red at the bench. yeah, not in his grave because he's still no, 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 absolutely <laughs> not. No. The master and his emissary. That's the book, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic book yeah, yeah, yeah. and his most recent book is the matter with things which is a two volume sort of 1200 page work which i have to confess i haven't read in its entirety but actually i'm not sure 
Uh, I'm not sure you need to read it in its in order. You need to read it in its entirety, but actually you can dip into it. It's extraordinary work. Reminds me of something you once said. You said there are no schedules, only checklists. Yeah, I, I don't really believe in pro- creative processes. I think there are checklists which are important. Yeah. And I think, you know, have you, have you looked at this? Have you considered that? What about this? I think checklists are really useful. I think the idea that there's a necessarily a kind of procedure and order in which you proceed, if you're trying to do something original, that yeah. is, if you're trying to do something which is the same as the time you did it before, then you want a process yeah. or an algorithm. Yes. But if you're trying to do something new, uh, the best you can hope for, I think, is a checklist. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the problem with trying to scale up creativity, isn't it? Which is to scale yeah. up, you kind of have to copy and paste quite a lot. I think what we can do, and which we what we fail to do in advertising, is I think we can kind of you can't replicate it, but I think you can classify it. Right. And I think you can find recurring patterns in successful marketing campaigns, uh, which you can uh, effectively uh, you can you, you can do variations on a theme if yeah. you like. Yeah. And I don't think, I think we need a kind of Linnaean classification of persuasive forms. I mean, all credit, actually, Bob Cialdini. I don't know if you're a fan of his book, Influence, but he was the first person to say, uh, he, 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 he effectively went out with sales forces and said, and he found that, just to be clear, he said every sales force, every successful salesman has a whole effectively a whole panoply of different techniques and some of them are totally specific to what you're selling you know if you're selling you know aluminium cladding or whatever it may be you'll have a shtick or a particular technique that's very effective but it's not necessarily applicable if you're selling bathroom supplies right but he said there are these six things i think he's now extended them to seven which recur from category to category in other words scarcity for example social proof they're kind of common recurring themes which humans instinctively find reassuring you know well is scarcity as in the less they're as in, valuable what's weird about them and i think you could probably make the case that they're kind of contradictory in other words not many people have this so it must be good yeah yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we can only produce two thousand bottles a year, therefore it must be good. Or Coca Cola, which is everybody drinks this, that's so right. it must be good. Or like in the case you mentioned on Rick Rubin's podcast, just been listening to that this afternoon. You said in some categories like fashion, uh, what was it? If you're not selling enough, try raising the price. You know, there are some items for which you have to pay a painful amount for it to actually matter. And the, I mean, the psychology of price is really interesting because. It's something that economics gets really badly wrong because it assumes that X, that cheaper is inherently better. And it forgets the fact that price isn't just a cost, it also conveys meaning. Yeah. And I, well, the way I would say is to economists, price is a number, but to consumers, it's a feeling. And the example I always give is if, if you were a completely logical economist, you had two products and one of them had greater functionality, more features than the other, and it also cost less. Now, in economic terms, that's a slam dunk. It's a no-brainer. It's a really easy decision. Greater utility, lower price. You buy the cheaper, more functional product. What actually happens in the human brain is we actually have second-order intelligence, which goes, well, if my product really was better, I'd kind of charge more for it, wouldn't I? So therefore, why is this product cheaper? Well, maybe there's something wrong with it that I don't know about. I now feel uneasy, so I'm not going to buy either of them. Right, yeah. So like, was it penicillin? If you get, you know, 62 pence is not enough. I've got a two pound... But aspirin, yeah. aspirin, was aspirin. The, aspirin was the great thing. Yeah, where I said, you know, I, it worries me that there isn't any premium aspirin because yeah. the placebo effect is undoubtedly affected, by the way. But if you tell people a treatment is expensive, it does, in many cases, make it more, more effective. 
which presumably our pharmaceutical clients are rolling. I mean, I mean, that's an interesting debate in itself, which is, and actually I bizarrely had a conversation briefly with Sir Patrick Valance, of all people. I had to give a talk at a medical uh, dinner. And I must admit, two weeks before the talk, I was kind of thinking, bunch of doctors, after dinner speech, maybe a few knob gags. Yeah. And then I had a look at the invitation list and realised it was got a Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance and Sir Richard Thompson. I thought, OK, I think I need to raise my game a bit here. And one of the things I was delighted Patrick Valance also agreed with is that we've got the placebo effect wrong in that to prove the efficacy of a drug, what we do is we take drug plus placebo only placebo, subtract placebo, that is efficacy of drug, because we're trying to prove the pharmacological value of the drug in isolation. But what we should be trying to do as, as doctors is increasing and maximising the combinatorial effect of the psychology and the, and the pharmacology. So you mean instead of yeah. minus placebo? So, 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 so let's, say, let's say you do... Okay, what's something I can't get hold of at the moment, which is this, um, you know, weight loss drug that you inject into your gut called um, Ozempic. Right. Okay, Wigovi. Now, what you might do is get a load of people to inject themselves with nothing, and a load of people to object, um, inject themselves with Ozempic, and you can reasonably say that the weight loss between the two is attributable to the pharmacology, not to the psychology. Okay. But what we should be doing with Ozempic is saying, how do you maximise the combinatorial effect in weight loss of psychology and pharmacology? In other words, do you tell people to take Ozempic for a week and then stop and then try and not eat for three weeks and then have another dose? You know, is there a way you can make this drug, in a sense, more theatrically effective? Because part of weight loss, undoubtedly, is pure, what you might call pure endocrinology or whatever, OK? Part of weight loss is surely convincing people, providing people with a narrative that things have changed and they can actually lose weight. They can change their behaviour. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I mean, is, is there a way in which you also combine it, say, with something like sleep therapy? And so what worries me is that we're trying to prove the standalone efficacy of different drugs when really we should be looking at the multiplicative, the combinatorial maximum efficacy of three interventions, behavioural, psychological and pharmacological, yep. and saying, how can we combine those three things to maximise effective weight loss? And instead, of course, to justify a drug for approval, what you have to do is subtract all the other things that are working when you should be trying to maximise them. Right. So there's a. this reminds me of a line that always comes back into my head, which is at the end of the final Harry Potter book. Um, now you've got you've got to, you've got to excuse me here. Weirdly, okay, I haven't read any Harry. I had a daughter who was obsessed with it. That makes sense. I think you're the right age to have not read the books. I'm probably at that grumpy Stuart Lee age where you go. You, you've seen the Stuart yeah, Lee. Yeah, I have read what yeah, Whitman's. You should read it, Stuart. It's about a wizard. No, I have read the entire works of William Blake. Yeah, that was now, Blake. Fuck off. off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah. Now I haven't read the entire works of William Blake. I probably should have done. But I, I, by the way, I make that mistake. I'm weirdly a bit snobby. I'm not very snobby about food. I'm as happy going to KFC as I am going to you know Michelin-starred restaurants. I'm weirdly snobby about cinema and the, yeah. you know my ideal film is like some french people getting upset about something over dinner yeah okay but i think that's i mean i, I actually ended up watching lion king which is the kind of thing which um the original uh, this is the yeah the, the movie cartoon. yeah yeah the cartoon yeah and i'm the kind of person i would have you know 
bloody children's thing. What am I watching a bloody cartoon for? I should be yeah. watching, you know, you know, I could, I, I could be watching Last Year of Marian Band. Yeah. Why would I watch it? And I watched Simon's. It's fucking amazing. Brilliant. It's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. But it's drawing from the same source material. You've got Hamlet. You've got Richard the Third. Well, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And it, so it, it's it's rather like Star Wars, which draws enormously on mythology. It's right. actually yeah. extra. And actually, one of the lessons is that the best of anything is great. Yes. Okay. Country music. You know that thing that went down to look at the Titanic yeah. and it, it imploded, okay? Well, you apparently you got to take your iPod or your Bluetooth device down and they had a Bluetooth speaker and you could choose your playlist for the journey down to the Titanic. But there was a rule, no country music. Now, that's a red that flag. Rule. That's a red that flag rule. right there. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to entrust my life to a guy who doesn't like country music. Because the best country music is, is, is fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Look, yeah. I'll finish my Harry Potter. Sorry, point. sorry. So, yeah, <laughs> Harry Potter. Sorry, back to John. Harry Potter. So don't don't start talking about things like Hogwarts. Because I, I there was this really annoying three-year period where every piece of journalism included a Harry Potter reference about yep. the sorting hat yes. or owls and our, your platform seven and three. No, no, no. This is... And I'd be sitting there reading... The Times or something. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah, yeah. How is this captured everything? This is absolutely What are you talking about? Owls. But there's a dream yeah. sequence at, mm. uh, at the end where Harry sees a, a Dumbledore in, in a dream and he uh, gets a revelation. But he says the problem is none of this matters because it's all in my head, so he's not real. And Dumbledore says, Of course it's all in your head, but who's to say that means it's not real? Of course, of course. Uh, this is to your point about mm. assuming the physiological is the only real effect and the psychological is a kind of. I mean, you, I mean, we've got a huge TV at the end of the room. You can't see it, but that's a mind hack. It only produces three colours. It's species-specific. I was talking to the um, uh, uh, Department of Business and uh, Trade today about precisely this, that it's optimised for perception. It's not optimised for objective reality. You couldn't make a television that actually reproduced colours without that mind hack. The better manual Kant would be jumping for joy. Yes, it would, absolutely, yeah. I mean, by the way, if you want a good book tip, folks, for your, your lovely readers and listeners, as well as obviously in McGilchrist, there's a book by a guy called Andy Clark called The Experience Machine. Yeah. And what he does is he revives and builds on a theory that goes back to the 19th century about human perception, okay? And I think it was a chap called Hermann von Helmholtz, sort of German polymath, and I think William James, who made the point... Now, before televisions, by the way, and before digitization, this theory must have seemed quite strange, but it makes sense in the light of technology. And the theory is that most of what we perceive as a prediction and that we use our limited bandwidth from our senses for error correction of prediction, not for generation of actual reality. Right, so we're, yeah, we're not seeing it firsthand. No, we're, we're generating it. it effectively. Now, if you, if you look at um, MPEGs and JPEGs, OK, the way they achieve their extraordinary data compression is that there is, a va there is an expect expected value for each pixel based on what pixel preceded it in time or what pixel is adjacent to it. And you only use data to describe the extent to which the pixel deviates from the expected value, which is a much more efficient use of data than describing each pixel in raw mode. For those of you who are digital... I mean, presumably, this isn't shooting in raw mode, is it? You're just shooting in MPEGs or... OK. Now, if you do take a bit... If I'm right here, I'm, I'm talking to the AV folks here. If you do shoot, shoot 
picture in raw mode. Presumably, it's great for editing because there's literally a value for each pixel, but the files are insanely massive. Is that right? Because I had a photographer who was my neighbour in Deal who had to come round because I had fibre optic broadband to the premises and he couldn't get it and he had to upload these raw photos. 120. It was they're like you know, insane sort of yeah, exactly. And um, I think he used to park outside my house when I wasn't there. Now, interestingly, it's much more efficient use of data to use data to error correct versus expectation than it is to use data to generate the whole image de novo from a blank slate. And what it seems to be the case is that the brain has come up with exactly the same data architecture that kind of Samsung and digital camera makers have come up with for data compression, which is just use the data to Because I, I, I don't know. I imagine if you wanted to have a TV in raw mode, okay, your sky dish would have to be the size of Jodrell Bank or something. I, I don't power know. consumption. The, you know, power consumption would have been absolutely insane. Yeah. But they play this brilliant three hacks. One, you only need three colours because the brain's basically, the cones in the eye only detect those three colours. Colour mixing's a psychological phenomenon. It's not, yeah. it doesn't exist it's not in really nature. happening there. No, no. If you mix green and whatever it is, you know, um, what is it, green and, yeah, and red, you yeah. see, green and red is yellow, isn't it? If you mix green and red photons, you don't get yellow photons. You get green and red photons. But, but the, brain, as a the brain effectively extrapolates yellow yeah. from the relative strength of those two stimuli. Yeah, so the frightening conclusion is there's no such thing as yellow. Uh, no, 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 there's a thing as magenta, particularly. Right. Magenta is entirely... Because halfway between red and blue is green... But you're not detecting any green with your green sensors. So magenta is effectively a colour the brain generates to explain away the inexplicable absence of green. OK. Um, this, this is actually fascinating because if this... Uh, I mean, when you think about it, if um, Andy Clark and von Helmholtz, and the, the book, once again, is called The Experience Machine, if they're right about this, which I think they probably are because it makes complete sense from a kind of data processing, mental data processing point of view, and that most of what we actually see is prediction and expectation... Um, and this may be true of movement as well. So in robotics, they've had some success by making robots move in a kind of way that's Bayesian. In other words, it's constant, it's intention combined with constant ongoing error correction rather than intention action. Yep. And it's interesting because apparently if you design robots to move in this Bayesian way, it looks much more natural and animalistic or human than it does if you actually design them to kind of This is similar this. to the way the degrees of like light intensity is logarithmic. So if you ask your... Uh, That's echo it. dot. Hmm. Turn the lights down by fifty percent. It will feel like it's barely moved. To feel like it's half as bright, it needs to be something like ten percent bright. Ah, yeah. yeah. That's interesting because that's psychophysics, which is a lot of things we perceive logarithmically. According to some scientists, we perceive numbers logarithmically. So if you take an enumerate tribe, apparently, and you go and put a grain of rice down, and then you put nine grains of rice down, and you ask them to make a pile that's halfway between the two, people who've done maths, who have an actual number system, put five. But people who actually don't put three. One, three, nine. Because they see three as halfway between one and nine. Why would that be? Well, it sort of makes sense. It suddenly makes sense to me in terms of our actual perception. Yeah. Because there's a big difference between being attacked by one lion and two lions, yeah. okay? Whereas the difference between being attacked by 98 lions and 99 lions yeah. is kind of hair-splitting and rather irrelevant. So in terms of perceiving quantity logarithmically, maybe that explains a lot of pricing, okay? You know that slightly weird thing with price, which is there are things that are expensive within the 20 to 30, 40 pound range, okay? 
And then I can go and spend £200 on something. It doesn't feel that much more expensive. Yeah, yeah. I've never quite understood this. I never actually do that sort of maths where I think, well, I could buy, you know, 200 fries at McDonald's for the price of this jacket. Well, you'd find, like, okay. you know, a stick of butter for £5.95, maybe not where you live, but we would find that in Salford. Oh, disgusting. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. A pint of beer, mm. well, I'll have three for that price, you know, five, no. 15 quid. And so there's this whole weird thing about, A, our perception of prices is comparative. Our perception of lots of things are comparative, and they're not linear. Yeah. Um, emphatically not linear at all. And so, you know, it's always, I always love American weather forecasts because they have this thing, feels like temperature. Yes. And it's, you know, well, here in Scottsdale, Arizona, it's 110th. But, of course, it's really humid. So, sorry, it's really dry, so it feels like about 90-something. Yeah. And it factors in breeze, humidity, and something else, I think. There's a third factor. Uh, maybe direct sunlight, I'm not sure. But I mean, it, it always struck me as really weird in that, as you know, as a fat Welsh Celtic guy, okay, I don't come into work if it hits 90 degrees Fahrenheit in London. That's just, okay, forget that. I can't cope with that. But I wander around Scottsdale in Arizona when it's 100 and something. I'm as happy as Larry. Because everyone's kind of doing the same well, thing. Well, actually, it's a really important point for climate change, which is a lot of the climate change modelling is all about increased temperature. But actually, what you should be modelling for is increased wet bulb temperature, which is uh, temperature plus humidity. Because humans can survive quite well in low humidity at 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Sorry, I'm old. OK, I'm still using... You're still on Fahrenheit. I, I'm the, I'm the la I will be the last person using... I don't use shillings on pens. <laughs> but I'm, I'm one of the last... I, it, 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 I, I must be um, in Europe... The people, the rental car companies must really hate me because I, you know, I get into a French rental car. First thing I do is language English or yeah. Welsh if I'm feeling really perverse, and then it says Fahrenheit miles. Okay, yeah, I convert everything to imperial, and there's some poor German who has the car after me who yeah. has driven practically insane. But, um, but you know, uh, but you you can survive in in really high temperatures if there's low humidity. Right. If you have a hundred percent humidity, a really fit human being. Uh, even well, um, uh, well provided with liquids, well, well, um, not humidified. What is it? Hydrated. Hydrated. Thank you. <laughs> Even well hydrated will die. Yeah. Um, by the way, I had a rant this morning. This is a complete. Um, but I'd like to hear your opinion on this, actually. Which is, as you probably know, the government really wants people to get heat pumps. And that's a heat pump. Okay. So it's a way of heating your house where effectively it's like a fridge in reverse. Okay. okay? It stores heat and then. So no, it basically yeah. extracts heat from the outside air and actually pumps it. So just as a fridge removes heat from the fridge and pumps it out into your kitchen. Other way around. A heat pump is a bigger version of a fridge which removes heat from the air outside your house, makes the air outside your house a bit colder, makes your house a lot hotter. And, you know, one way of doing it is you replace your boiler with a heat pump and you put a great piping of water underneath your lawn because that makes it a bit more effective. Now, Britain's few, a few things, because of the magic of kind of, you know, thermodynamics, yeah. OK, you actually get five times as much heat out as you put energy in. There is a, It varies depending on what the temperature difference is between outside and, out and inside. But whereas when you burn gas in a boiler to heat your house, it probably converts calorific value at about 50% into heat in the home. You actually get a sort of 300 400% bonus when you use electricity to power a heat pump. It's, I know it sounds like magic, but because it isn't generating heat like a boiler, it's extracting it and moving it from the outdoors into, a, into the indoors, it's vastly more efficient. 
even though you're using electricity, not gas. The catch. So what? Well, there's the catch. But here's where it, I was having a bit of a rant to these people. It's not their responsibility at all. But one form of heat pump is just an air conditioning unit, okay? And if you've been in a hotel room, what you may have noticed is the air conditioning unit is also the heater. Yeah. Okay, and all you do is it flips some little switch, directional switch, and an air conditioning unit stops removing heat and pumping it outside and starts extracting heat from the outside and moving it inside. So an air conditioning unit is also an air-to-air heat pump. Now, this is what pisses me off, okay? Quite a lot of people, I think, would keep their boiler and bit by bit, like it's about 1,500, 2,000 quid to buy an air conditioning unit, little little supply room, okay? And one year at a time, they might get, they might go, okay, I'll air condition the kitchen. I'll put an air-to-air heat pump in the kitchen. And when they got three or four of these things, they'd hardly be using their boiler and their gas at all, except in really, really cold weather, okay? And you can't get a government grant for that. What? Okay. You can get a government grant for digging up your lawn, putting huge numbers of pipes in, throwing out your gas boiler, um, replacing your radiators. You can get a government grant for doing something that's really stupid and complicated. Yeah. But the simple thing, which exploits exactly that same benefit of heat transfer being very efficient, and the reason is because they said, well, if we give people air conditioning, they might use it for air conditioning, which will actually increase energy use. And again, well, look, I'm a marketer, right? I can sell anybody air conditioning, which also reduces their gas bill. If I go to you and say, how would you like air conditioning? And it will also save you a couple of hundred quid a year on your heating bills. And, and by the way, you can keep your existing boiler. You don't have to have someone digging up your lawn. You just put this sort of thing with a fan outside your house and a bit of a vent thing coming in. My dad's got it. My dad's 93. Wow. And we realized, OK, he needs air conditioning because, you know, when you're, 80, when you're 93, a, a real heat wave yes. could be quite dangerous. Yes. OK. I mean, you 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 know you, you you don't cool yourself as effectively as you as you get older. And my dad now is at home with his air conditioning unit, providing most of the heat downstairs. It's a heat pump, an air-to-air heat pump. It's a really easy sale. I got my dad. My dad's you know he's quite stingy, but I easily persuaded him to get this thing. No problem. No, no, no. You can't get a grant for that, but you can get a grant for digging up your lawn, replacing your boiler, throwing that out. Well. Okay, I get it, okay? There's a risk that people use it for air conditioning. Well, you could limit it so you can only use it for air conditioning when the temperature hits 24 degrees or something anyway, okay? I'm using centigrade, you notice. Um, okay, but I said, mate, you know, this is effing Britain, right? I get it. If I'm the Greek government, okay? Yeah. If, if, I, you know, if I'm the government of Chad, okay, yeah. I don't want people installing air conditioning. I can understand that point. This is going to be like three, four weeks of the year at most. And you're going to cheer everyone up in that one gonna, week, uh, everyone's unbearable. And also, it's, you're, going to, you're going to be able to sleep. Because, yes. you, know, you know, that yes. week where you can't get to sleep because you're just lying there like yeah. some character in a Graham Greene novel. And the conversation you know, just becomes that. It's just, oh, it's all, I can't get yes, to sleep, not, dear. Yes. No, I'm not either. It's terrible. You yeah. know. And then you have the windows open and then it's noisy and all that sort of stuff. So my view is this is done because it's, it's the great being the enemy of the good. Because I, mean, I always ask this question, what, why do you actually recycle your bottles at a bottle bank? Well, 20% of it is save the world. 80% of it is because smashing bottles inside a big metal container is a fucking blast, yeah. right? Okay, we love it. You know, a trip to the bottle bank is basically a treat, okay? Now, if you have this one positive, which is, oh, and you get air conditioning as well, okay, I can see a load of people going, yeah, what the hell, I can keep my existing gas. I've got a bit of resilience here because I've still got a gas supply, but most of my heat, when it's economic and when there's 
an abundance of, you know, solar or other clean generated energy, most of it can come through electricity. whoop de doo And I'm not going to freeze to death because I've still got my gas boiler and my radiators in the fallback. I can see a million people doing that, OK? Yeah. Whereas digging up your lawn, throwing out your existing equipment, done. And so it's a typical case where the thing has been optimised for objective perfection, not for realistic human reality. Yeah. So it's, it's an absolutely classic case where instead of going to marketers and saying, look, never mind what's perfect, theoretically, what can we reasonably persuade people to do? Can we persuade people who are quite rich with bigger houses to spend a bit of money, which which means they'll save money quite a lot of the year heating their home, and they'll also get air conditioning if there's a horrible hot day in the summer, and they don't have to do major building works. Yeah, I can get people to do that. Mm -hmm. Can I get people to do the conventional heat pump solution? Forget about it, okay? So this is uh, this is part of your um, hmm. what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a, so, a trunk that runs through your thinking is counter rationalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. So don't optimize for reality and then impose it on people. Yeah. Optimize for people and then get the reality to do you know to do what it can. Yes. And that's my argument. It's a classic case where, you know, if you're coming up with theoretically perfect solutions which are not marketable, and. You know, if you if you look at all the great inventors, okay, you look at Henry Ford, you look at um, uh, well, Edison, you look at Steve Jobs, okay, they're hucksters. They're salesmen. Yes, yeah, but they didn't just go. I made a perfect I mean, thing. The, the, the reason they're so successful is probably not because they had a comparative advantage in inventing shit. It's because they were just better at selling it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the whole history of the sort of American 19th century invention, people like Otis, who invented the elevator, were going around like state fairs and fairgrounds demonstrating these, you know, elevator cars where and they'd cut the cable and it would drop six inches and just stop because it, it was some super safety system. But they didn't just talk about it. They went and created a load of theatre. Yeah. And I think, I think that everybody is so keen to pretend the world works. Well, I think, if I'm being a bit McGilchristy, I think it's not just that the left brain sees the world in this kind of reductionist, some of the parts way. I don't think it's just that. I think the left brain really wants the world to be like that and wants to create a world which is like that because it feels more comfortable. But, you know, I mean, actually, I'll give you two examples of this, actually. Um, one of them I worked on a bit and the other one I had nothing to do with. But two of the... I don't know why I'd be interested in the... I'd always like to bring in the other folks. Um... Two of the best ideas in the last 30 years in terms of tech products, um, the Meta Portal TV, which is basically video conferencing in HD on your television. It was about 120 quid. You plugged it into the back of your TV. It had a camera which also tracked you around the room. They went to Hollywood directors so that the camera would kind of track you and zoom into your face in a kind of brilliant you know, artistic, not like a kind of janky you know, computer. Not, not a janky computery way. It was a kind of Roger Deakins yeah, kind of, like you know, smooth nice thing. smooth yeah. little swoop. It's like five hundred quid's worth of equipment for a hundred quid, and it sits on top of your telly. And you know, if you've got relatives on the other side of the world, or indeed the other side of the country, you can basically kind of chat to them on your massive telly as if they're there. As if they're there. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Okay. Basically, failed for marketing reasons because everyone is too frightened to let Facebook put a camera in their home. Okay. Total marketing failure, brilliant product. But the more extreme case, which I, I, I mourn every week, Google Glass. Yes, you said some Absolutely sensational yes. product, badly marketed. 
There are all kinds of reasons for the bad marketing. They launched too soon. There was some sort of weird affair between one of the Google's founders. It was like 2011, wasn't it? It was way before but any of it's this. it's still necessary, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, the watch is stupid because I, I've got to do something to see the time. If I just had a little device which occasionally said, this email's come in, you can ignore it, but it might be important. Mm -hmm. This is your next meeting. This is the time. Yeah. You have 10 minutes. Turn left. Okay, which just gave me small... It didn't need to have a camera on the front that recorded. That was dumb. Yeah. And also, they gave it to a load of developers first who, you know, without dissing, you know, techies... They're a certain type. They're, they're a certain type. So then you had the glass holes kind of, or glass holes kind of, you know, opprobrium. But it was... A, I still think that product... I mean, someone... Because people don't understand marketing, they go, oh, that product didn't succeed. I think that product was brilliant. I think it was just badly marketed. Well, I mean, you were saying this about video conferencing for years, but, but there's something else that I want to pull you onto here because it, it, it dovetails nicely. So Google Glass, my fear for something like that would be... So, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you here, but I can also have emails come up in my heads-up display, so I'm a bit distracted over here, and then maybe I can have... A, there's an advert going on down there. Have you heard of sludge content? No, well, I know about sludge, which, which is the opposite of nudge, generally. What's that? It, that's, it's a bit similar to dark patterns in design of interfaces. Dark patterns, okay, right. Dark patterns are kind of where you make it really easy to do the highly profitable thing and really difficult to, say, cancel your subscription. Oh, thing. yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. We're going to yeah. get onto that in a minute. But so this, I'm gonna, for, uh, Chris is going to be annoyed at me now because I'm going to be showing Rory something on my phone. Okay, so, well, I was showing you have a nice inset appearing in there. Yeah. This, this is sludge content. So let's see if I'll, I'll just get your Yo, reaction to it. You know every single odd number has an E in it. James? Are you I again? No. Wait a minute, bruh. Since you were born deaf, boy, like, what do you make of that? Well, okay, so you've got you're not controlling that character at the bottom. It's just running around jumping. Absolutely, that's just on. That's a TikTok video. So what's it designed? Okay, tell me what it's designed to do. What's the, the way it was explained to me was. Two completely unrelated videos mean you, means your visual brain can never get bored. Oh, I see. Something else just to take your mind off things if you get a tiny bit bored for a second. That explains a very interesting thing, which is one of the things that really annoys me about the um, back-to-the-office movement, okay, is I sit at home, I've got a 55-inch um, 4K TV, which I use as a monitor, affixed to the wall in front of the desk. I've got a laptop screen, I've got a professional webcam, and I come into the office and they basically give it, say, here's your plug and here's a chair. Okay. Now, one thing we know about productivity apparently is that multiple monitors oh, yeah. are an absolute productivity booster. Okay. And yet, what we're doing is we're doing this hot desking thing where people sit, I'm 58. Okay. One of the things that really drives me crazy is mobile phone. I mean, a lot of older people use a tablet basically as a mobile phone. Yeah. Because the mobile phone is too damn small and fiddly, unless you have good fat finger design. The mobile phone for people over a certain age is just too fiddly and difficult to read. And, you know, you know, you know I always find it weird that my kids were like, book a flight on a mobile phone. Like, yeah. If I tried to book a flight on a mobile phone, I'd end up in Addis Ababa at 2 a.m. on it's a Wednesday. It's a bit too small to be doing and it, that. And also, also, of course, it makes the choice architecture more painful because on a good web page mm -hmm. you can make choose from 12 options then another page on you've chosen from another 12 you've now got one out of 144 options in two clicks yeah. in a mobile phone it either involves a lot of scrolling or a hell of a lot of clicking before you actually get to what you want yeah. so there are all sorts of reasons why the big I mean I find kids weird like this I mean well you know I mean 
you know, when I was all through the 70s, 80s, you know, 90s, how big is your TV? Let's watch this on a bigger screen. Wow, it's IMAX, okay? Yeah. And then I got my fucking 22-year-old kids going, oh, I can watch this on a thing the size of a fucking letterbox. Yeah, totally. What was all that about? Lovely story about that, by the way, which is totally irrelevant, but um, uh, people always talked about how big their television was, I mean, literally through the 50s and 60s. And Kenneth Williams' mum and the Carry On films uh, was clearly the person from whom Kenneth Williams got his sense of smut. Was he the I Sam? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Right. And he, um, so Kenneth Williams' mum is sitting backstage waiting for some filming of one of the Carry On films to finish. And, uh, so, what television have you got? Uh, she asked her friend, we've just bought a 14-inch console. And Kenneth Williams' mum said, 14 inches, that's enough to console anyone. Oh, okay. So clearly, <laughs> clearly the sort of genetic theory of smut, I think, which is that uh, it was uh, kind of, uh, I, I don't think you can, I, I think his mum was probably a major contributory factor to... Uh, Seems likely, doesn't it? But, it does, doesn't it? Well, can I pull you onto something completely different? Why do you think we're under-exploiting sonic branding? Uh... Well, Mark Ridson has some very good data which shows that... I'm always interested, OK, in that the best of something which is underrated, that's where to go. Right. If you're buying property, if you're buying drink, go and find the th a category that's underrated and then find the best thing within that category. It's OK, gaming the system. Well, country music would be a very good example. Sherry in alcoholic drinks. Underrated, okay. find the best. Yeah, exactly. If you, if you try and buy great wine, it, you can buy great wine. It costs an absolute fortune, OK? If you want to buy great sherry, it's probably 50% more than the average sherry. Yeah. And so you get this over-concentration. I said this with Rick Rubin, actually. There are various musical genres, and it's considered high status to dismiss. The two that were first to be dismissed are typically heavy metal and country. Yeah. Not, that's because of the user imagery. It's nothing to do with the actual inherent quality of the music itself. Mm, so because it's associated with... It's associated with cowboy hats or cowboy hats yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. But the country music is kind of music. Oh, it's, it's uh, outstanding. Music. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. My Church by Marin Morris is a recommendation for for everyone. So I went to a mastering studio in New Jersey uh -huh. over, the over the summer, Chris Geringer. Uh, was the chap who showed me around. And uh, it's an amazing thing because he's got this million-dollar room just for making records sound perfect, kind of at the end of the factory process. It's like shining it. And yeah. yeah. And he's like, well, what do you want to listen to? And I was like, uh, just show me where you're going. He goes, listen to some of this and puts on Marin Morris. Amazing country music. You can have it. And, you know, it's really, really loud. And you're like, it's probably one of the best days of my life. You of course know? it is. A million-dollar sound system for country music. And so Sherry will be another point. And so one of the things I think that advertising and marketing people get wrong is go and find the things that nobody else does and do them well. Right. And um, a friend of mine, Graham Fink, yeah, uh, yeah. brilliant, brilliant, great. You should be a face, didn't Absolutely he? right. You should interview him. He's a neighbour of mine in Deal, so I go out to dinner with him quite a bit. I'll send him this. But he said he started his whole career because he said nobody wanted to do the radio ads. Ah. Now, the interesting same thing... Same as Paul Burke. Paul Burke, exactly the same. Nobody wanted to do the radio, particularly in the UK, because we didn't have a long tradition of commercial radios in the US. Too much BBC. Um, the US. I mean, interestingly, the whole film Convoy, uh, the whole Convoy thing yeah. is, was actually created by something, is it BJ McCall, who was actually an advertising copywriter who created the character, who then created the song, which actually... Is that the, we are on a convoy? convoy. Exactly, yeah. So that, that, the, the entire origins of that are kind of... Because I think he used to... If I'm right, he used to... Um, 
Quite a, lot of the, quite a lot of the copywriters would actually record their own stuff as well, I mean, in some cases. But Graham Fink spotted two things, one of which is you got to work with incredible talent because you could get amazing actors to appear in a radio ad for a fraction of the cost of appearing in TV. So you got to work with amazing talent. If you just put a little bit of extra money and love in, it made a really big difference. And also, a good radio ad was a lot more surprising to the consumer than a good TV ad. Yeah. You know, it had that kind of, oh, I wasn't expecting that. That's actually a really great ad, yeah. you know. Um, and so finding that, that that game theory approach, which is find what's underrated and then do it well. And two of the things, I think, which are completely uh, underexploited, certainly Ritson says this, sonic branding of any kind, uh, where you effectively associate the brand and you give it a certain distinctiveness of noise. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to note that Netflix and HBO and more recently ITVX have all created a really, really distinctive... Yeah. One of them's called, I think, Silent Angel. The other one's probably called Tadum. I'm not yes. quite sure. Yeah, it's called something like that. Yeah, yeah. Tadum. Yeah. Okay. Those things actually have an uh, effectively a kind of... You know, I think a connection to the amygdala that is much, much stronger than we give credit to. Yep. And there's an argument that, you know, some great ads, you've actually started with the, with the music and yep. built the ad around it, yep. in a sense. I mean, you know, a lot of the great Levi's stuff was track-dependent. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, uh, the, the 90s I mean, it's, it's always worth asking that question. There was a guy called Neil French, who was creative director of WPP in Ogilvy, and... First of all, he asked everybody in the sort of creative community in Ogilvy, what is your favourite sort of one minute of film in the whole of the films you've seen? Yours was Zulu, wasn't it? Uh, by, it might well have been, actually, the singing, yeah. You're absolutely right. And he pointed out that actually in the vast majority of them there was music. Yes. Um, he used to do a thing which got him into huge trouble, which is he'd, he'd show uh, the Seven Dwarfs uh, with Hi Ho, and then he'd show the same footage with the Horse Vessel song. And, of course, you know, if you have a Nazi marching song versus a, you know, wow. a Disney song, it comes across completely differently, yep. OK? The whole meaning of the thing is changed by the the, the music. Yep. Um, One of the risks with Sonic branding, I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of them tend to devolve into the same kind of PlayStation startup sound with, like, a single piano note, uh, an impact, and some nice pads. Yes, so it's hard to get it somewhere away from that. And also whistling tends to be quite effective as well. I mean, I, mean, I think ITV's done quite a good job with ITVX. I think yep. they've, done, they've, they've, they've got into the zone there. The other thing that's hugely underrated, we've got a company here uh, in the building uh, called Mando Connect, which is one of the very few companies to specialise in, as, and Ritson says this, brand partnerships. Aston Martin, James Bond. Yeah, you... exactly. Yeah, that's probably the, you know one of the most exalted ones. But they generally are extraordinarily cost-effective, which is probably why they get um, neglected. Right. So there's always there's always this problem with the human brain, which is we think that we pay attention to what's important, but actually we think important what we're paying attention to. Yes. It kind of works in both directions. Yeah. And the very fact that something gains our attention gives it importance. And this is usually why a lot of the big problems in history come from left field where you're not looking. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's focused on what, what they think is important. Yeah. No one saw 9-11. No, 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 one, no one sees 9-11 coming. No one sees COVID coming, etc. Yeah. And so so our attention is, in a sense, you know, it's it's um, it, it can be a kind of feedback, d distorting feedback loop. Yeah. One of the things I think that happens in marketing is that we pay a lot of attention to the things that are expensive. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so that gets all our attention. So we automatically assume the TV commercial must be massively important. Yeah. Whereas, you know, brand um, 
brand partnerships, you know, they don't cost very much to do. So your budget's tiny. So you don't really worry about it very much. And so you have this fundamental, and I think that happened to radio advertising. It was partly considered unimportant because it was cheap, yeah. really. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not being paid by the Radio Advertising Bureau to say this, but in all the time I've worked in this business, I've never really seen a case where radio advertising doesn't work pretty well. This seems honest. like a really good time to bring this up. So okay. Uh, uh, have you listened to the Rick Rubin podcast or did you merely just experience the... I've listened to it in part. It was edited down from the original five and a half hours to three and a half, which a friend of mine told me was perfect because... It was exactly the time it takes to drive from Sheffield to London. Well, there so, you go. That's what yeah, yeah, okay. for. Yeah. So I heard this and I thought it was excellent. Hang on. Have you ever felt dehydrated after an intense workout? It took me a minute to notice it was actually an ad. And I was like, 15 seconds almost with no voice. I don't know if Rick has some input in that, but I was like, that's brilliant. It kept me listening to it. Uh, now, what would immediately happen is someone would say, we can get in another 20 words here and make it more like an ad. Right. Yeah, and exactly. You hear it yeah. sound like an ad and you skip. Yeah, I mean, this is why the business, the business is kind of painful in an age of management consultants and engineers because one of my favourite phrases is, it's from, you know, the greatest expert in kind of, productivity and output uh, of the 20th century, a guy called W. Edwards Deming, who just said, to optimise the whole, you have to sub-optimise the parts. And what people try and do with ads is they try and make every component of it work as hard as possible. Oh, yeah, you mean the voiceover. That will make the overall ad the most effective. Yes. But actually, there's a role for white space in press ads. There's a role for silence in TV ads. Yeah. You know, um, there's a role for just having a period of music before someone starts talking. My co-producer, Aaron Bentley, at Gas Music, went to jazz college and he said they told him one of the most valuable pieces of advice there ever. He said, not every bar needs to be a work of genius. No, interesting. You know, have you yeah. been in a voiceover yeah. session where they, mm. what would you say, um, put every single word under scrutiny? Can you say, it, you know, lifts with a bit more? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. Like, but the, the gestalt is what's important. The whole is what's important. So you're saying don't try and optimise all the little parts. Then there's a fantastic scene in The Trip, which yeah. has Steve Coogan and Rob, uh, Rob Brydon. Uh, talking about basically advertising voiceover work and also TV, what is it, TV continuity announcement. That's pretty uh, awesome. They had that wonderful thing, wasn't it, with um, uh, apparently it drives the actor Trevor Eve. Was it Desperate Measures with Trevor Eve coming soon? To And, and he said, you know, when it, if it's BBC Two, you need to give a sense of homecoming. Coming soon to BBC Two. Right. And then it was ITV and so on. Desperate Measures with Trevor right. Eve coming right. And the whole thing about the tonality of the whole is what really... And, of course, it's it's very difficult. You, you it, it seems very easy to talk about the individual word and the cadence of the individual word, but actually it's the whole that conveys yeah. the meaning. I mean, I, the most extreme case of that, of course, which always fascinates the hell out of me, is song lyrics, treating song lyrics as standalone pieces of writing. OK, so the, the, the first one is... Um, uh, I love it when you get a really anally retentive person who points out that if you take, for example, I shot a man in Reno just to see him no. die, and, and someone points out, well, why then are you in... Is it San Quentin? Is it the jail? Yeah, OK. Because surely if you shot a man in Reno, you'd be dealt with by the um, Nevada 
uh, <laughs> penitentiary. <laughs> the Nevada criminal justice system would take your case unless there was some interstate element to your crime, OK? Yeah. And picking, picking the details apart, or the fact that... Um, uh, so a very funny thing. One of my favourite songs of all time is The Day Before You Came by ABBA, their last ever song, which only got to number, number 17. And it's kind of like this weird masterpiece. But... You can change the entire meaning of the song if you suggest that it's someone giving evidence of their movements in response to a police inquiry. Right? <laughs> you know, I, um, I must have left my work about, you know, my desk about a quarter after five or whatever it was. And um, uh, but it has complete inconsistency because she stops at about six o'clock to get a Chinese some Chinese food to go, and then she only gets home at eight. Right. And there are a load of sort of alien attentive people going, well, either the Swedish Chinese restaurants are unbelievably inefficient, yes. or she was up to no good for those two hours. You, two hours are unaccounted for, and yet was it Anjeta Falstog? I can't remember which one's singing. Okay, these two hours, Miss Falstog, are clearly unaccounted for. Yeah. But what's interesting about that is you then take songs literally. You know, like, I mean, you know, um, uh, for example, you know, um, Sex Bomb with Tom Jones. Words are totally meaningless, yeah. OK, if you look look at them purely as words. But if you put them in a song and you get Tom to sing them, you know exactly what Tom means. Yeah. OK, Spy On Me, Baby, You Sat... You think it would be different with a different singer? It would have different meaning? You're going, nothing would replace that. I mean, come on, well, she didn't, you can't, be reasonable. Of course, yeah. Okay, you know, <laughs> nothing could possibly replace Tom. Of course. No. Of course. Um, uh, and, um, but it, it is, it's fascinating because there's the whole question of, this is very Ian McGilchrist, you know, the whole rather than the component parts. Yeah. And it's probably a bit of a problem where in various uh, art forms, specialisms and silos have taken over to such an extent that you, and it happens in business where people are not responsible very few people are responsible for the business and the value it creates yeah. instead they're optimizing this component part to which they've been charged the with responsibility in pop song production someone yeah. writes the lyrics then mm. someone produces a demo and then someone has to change it someone has to obviously perform it someone has to mix it afterwards and then master so you've got this well, long production line well when you think about it it makes no sense at all, right, that 50% of the world's best songwriters were singer-songwriters. Yeah. Okay? That shouldn't happen. That they should perform right themselves. They're performing themselves. you think it was Dylan, all Okay, Dylan, Merlin. the Beatles, the Stones, okay? Yeah. You'd think... Now, obviously, okay, if you take two absolutely brilliant songwriters, Lieber and Stoller, yeah. okay, it's fair to say that two balding middle-aged guys with horn specs yep. probably would have had trouble getting Hound Dog into the top. But that's 20. why they hated the Beatles at the time, wasn't it? It's like these kids, these fucking kids are getting into the charts and writing Appar the songs. Apparently you had the problem because Motown adhered to this kind of production line Detroit Factory. system. Yeah. They were trying to stop Michael Jackson writing music, basically. They were saying, no, no, no you sing. <laughs> yeah. okay. you're, you're, and I know this is probably not the most, but, you know, um, but your job is to sing. Yep. We've got these guys in the shed over there who are writing the songs. Uh, we've got Studio 3 free. We get so a I song from these guys. We give it to you, and now you perform it and record it. Yep. Okay. They go, but I want to write my own. No, yeah. no, yep. you can't do that. Well, no. this, this, this is probably like, in your in your world of thinking, isn't it? It's like when something, when the what this apparatus isn't quite ready for... Uh, 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 the new arrival, so Elvis Presley is what I'm thinking of, was treated the way they knew how to treat singers then. Not like the Beatles, where he's a rock star who tours. No. We, we need to put him in films and get his songs in the films. Interesting. Uh, yeah. They, they treated him more like a movie star than like a rock star, because the rock star was not an archetype that existed yet. 
No, and I suppose actually, well, a few of the Beatles acknowledged that, didn't they? That without Elvis, there would be no Beatles. There would be no Beatles. Yeah. But, yeah. So he's the first rock star, and uh, as a result, was kind of crucified on doing croony, doing croony films. Uh, yeah, exactly that. So um, there's a few more things that I know Anna's going to come in not too long, not immediately, but um, there's a few more things that I need to get your take on. Of course, yeah. And um, one of the we've done sludge content, we've done the ads on Rick. That sludge thing is really, really interesting. So it's impossible to get bored. The idea is that there's this kind of mind hack mm -hmm. that if you show people two things going on at once. Yeah. Okay. That's the idea. So I'm that was always the great thing. I always thought that was an incredible, um, a couple of incredible sort of innovations in film were 24. The whole idea behind 24, which is it is in real time, yeah. and you'd have literally parallel camera action. And I suppose the other one was uh, you had um, a CSI, which of course was also partly a large, I think, a product of some extraordinary... Well, there, there are loads of things about it which were remarkable. That caused my entire cohort, sort of people born in the early to mid-90s, to want to be forensic scientists. Like CSI inflated the number of people going to university. It, well, also, it's a brilliant thing in a way because I don't think forensic scientists are actually that attractive in reality, <laughs> OK? And probably have chosen more on their... Uh, scientific ability. Than, yep. But the second thing that's weird, of course, is that all of those things, my, my brother-in-law's a script writer for variously sort of Silent Witness yep. and Waking the Dead and so forth. And he said, of course, the whole thing is based on a complete pretense, which is that forensic scientists investigate crimes, right? Yeah, and get majorly involved in driving around the place, you know, breaking into people's homes. Yeah, they're not. They're not. Uh, they're <laughs> not. Uh, what they What are they called? They're not actually the um, C uh, CID. Is that what you call it? No, no, no. They're, they're purely there as a support function. Just an analyst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. process this. But obviously, that wouldn't make very good television. In right. fairness, if they weren't allowed to leave the was it the Lyle laboratory or whatever, that, yeah. you know? Okay, if they weren't allowed to leave. They said, oh, we've just had something come in. Yeah. Oh, look, here's an envelope. You know, that wouldn't make great television. Well, so you should watch Air Crash Investigation. Oh, bit, uh, no, can like I tell that. you a very funny story about yeah. this? My wife occasionally accuses me, with some justification, of not always, but under certain circumstances, of being totally insensitive. <laughs> like, you know, you pushed in front of that woman with a pushchair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and um, for about two years, there was this thing, which was an app on your laptop, and at the time, I had like a 17-inch MacBook Pro, enormous screen. Yeah. And you could get the Sky app, and you could download anything that you were entitled to watch on Sky. You could download to your laptop and then watch it, okay? And with this 17-inch screen, for about six months until I suddenly had an epiphany, I used to watch Air Crash Investigation on a plane. No way. Right? Okay, okay. And I was sitting there, and of course... What do you know, actually, it's particularly true in business class where the people aren't choosing to fly, OK? About one in three people, one in, one in four, are shit scared of flying. There are people who are just frightened on takeoff and landing, and yeah. there are people who literally spend the entire flight yeah. in a state of terror, OK? And I was sitting there, and there was like a picture of like the wreckage of a 747 strewn over a Japanese thing, or <laughs> effectively, you know, the... the, the uh, Reenactment of a of a plane going into stall before, yeah. and then you know, then there was the black box being retrieved from three hundred feet below the water surface. And I was watching all this stuff. I'm not remotely frightened to fly. I'm a bit weirdly, I'm a tiny bit more frightened than I was. Mm -hmm. But uh, it happens. Fascinating. I had a friend in the Foreign Office, and there are people who spend their entire working lives basically flying all over the place, yeah. not a care in the world. And at the age of something like fifty five. 
they basically feel their luck's run out yeah. and they suddenly become nice. really, really nervous flyers. But I was sitting there with a 17-inch screen with air crash investigation on. Didn't occur to me, and this is a fair point to my wife, that there are occasions where I'm just totally insensitive. I mean, there are certain... There are certain there's a bit of me where... Um, Larry David, um, yep, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I actually brought my wife in and said, you've got to watch this, because if you watch this, you'll understand me. Yeah. Where, funnily enough... How long into the marriage was that? Um, <laughs> well, what, what, what happens in the scene? Oh, I can imagine myself doing... So Larry's wife is on a plane that's going through a really dangerous thunderstorm and is about to crash, and she manages to get the phone to basically say, Larry, Larry, I'm not sure we're going to make it. Larry's got the cable guy there trying to repair the cable TV, and he wants to know where the warranty card is. <laughs> OK, but, but the cable box, OK. And he's going, yeah, 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 yeah. And she comes back and then says, I'm sorry, Larry, I'm leaving. You're just totally insensitive. I was there, you know, thinking I was going to die. And you basically... Now, I said to my wife, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I can completely imagine myself yeah. doing that. Yeah. You know, I've finally got the cable guy to come out. You know, there's this problem where he can't watch the basketball because it keeps going fuzzy, OK? And I would become totally fixated on that problem to the extent of ignoring the context of any other kind of problem. And that's what I was doing when I was watching uh, Air Crash Investigation. I just love the reenactments where they basically, uh, you know, they write on a whiteboard, like, fuselage, question mark? Yes, yes. Mm. <laughs> well, a, a part of something, yeah. yeah. There's usually, what is it, they're flapperons, ailerons, etc. yeah. yeah. Um, there's two um, instances of... Um, what would you call it, like a broad intervention having these like unnecessarily, uh, sorry, unintended, but really radically transformative effects. So the first one is in, uh, is in a musical genre. Have you heard of dubstep? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I watched a documentary about that on YouTube. I'll take your point on Rick Rubin, by the way. YouTube is now just a huge network of great documentaries. It's amazing. It, it, what happened is it reached a kind of inflection point where it became Wikipedia with films. Yes. It, and the second thing is, by the way, everybody, I'm not paid by Google to say this, but get YouTube Premium. It's the best £15 you'll spend all month. You may as well have I should be of saying, TV. get your ad free. But not only, as you said, suddenly switching into copywriter mode, I didn't realise this, but when you get YouTube Premium, you also get better video quality, and it also remembers where you finished watching. Oh, that's so you can go from one device and then just pick it up on your home TV. Watch it on your home TV because this is broadcast quality and use the search function because you can search for goddamn anything yep. and you'll find some film footage about it. Of course. And that wasn't true, I think, eight years ago. No, it was quite annoying no. back then, yeah. But uh... but now it's suddenly reached that inflection point where, it, you know, if you're really, really interested in... <laughs> um, you know, this is probably... I, I don't think I'm going to get any sexual propositions out of this. But if you're the kind of person who likes watching a two-hour documentary on European signal boxes, my God, it's the thing for you, <laughs> you know? Um, yes. that's, that's kind of my kind of... Um, uh, that, that's kind of my evening's TV. I am slightly nerdy in okay. terms of... I, I love... My, my dad's exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, he loves... Factual television yeah. is his absolute delight. I mean, I persuaded him to get Sky, yeah. and he really enjoys it for the documentaries over everything else. I just yeah. like the new... The, the thing that's exciting about AI uh, is the way, you know, the way it can polish up old footage to make it look 1080. So the Netflix documentaries of World War II done in colour with, you know, souped-up sound. Oh, and there's a guy on YouTube who takes really, really early footage. Yeah and uses AI to soup it up. And there's, of course, the famous French footage of the train arriving and wherever it is. Yeah. There's even earlier footage. I think the first cinema footage is actually in a garden in Liverpool, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is, it's only about 10 seconds of people dancing around. But then when you actually um, effectively remaster it, it's kind of extraordinary. Yeah. 
because you realise how, you know, here are people who, it's very much actually, if you, if you ever go to, I suppose it's Holland or Belgium, but the Flemish artists, what's quite interesting, is you go and look at Rembrandt paintings of faces, and let's be honest about it, okay? We, I'm, I'm not dissing Leonardo da Vinci, but you don't see that many people like the Mona Lisa wandering around. And you see those Rembrandt faces and you go, shit. Yeah. You know, How did you I can imagine that see... bloke in a pub yes. with his packet of drum rolling tobacco. Yeah. I can imagine seeing that guy right now. Yeah. And... Um, and so you get exactly that same feeling when you see that remastered footage. There's there's some really early footage by, I think, a, might be a French or English guy, just people coming out of a factory. Yeah. And just the physiognomy, the whole thing is just mad. But YouTube Premium, you get better video quality. It remembers what you've last watched. I think it, it improves the recommendations. It's It seems like a lot of money because... Unlike Netflix, you can watch it for free. Yeah. Okay. So, but at the same time, it's kind of kind of the last thing I'd give up if I if I went bust. It'd be the last subscription to go. I that's think. a that's a much better way of looking at it because, like you say, there is a weird psychological thing with the fact that it most it seems like it's always free. So why would I ever no, pay for absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and actually, and obviously trying to hammer it with adverts on the free version. You, what one has to say is that um, uh, you know I said this today uh, to somebody else in in sort of the government said schools have to teach videography now it's yeah. a basic form of literacy yeah being able to film yourself record yourself and just understanding the grammar of filmmaking yeah and when, in fairness with youtube it doesn't have to be you know it doesn't have to be roger deakins yeah. right you know but if you've got basic competence in narrative storytelling and yeah. filmmaking that's really what you need and i'm sure i'm gonna i'm gonna say also um you know, one of the reasons, one of the reasons I think, uh, and this is, I'd be interested to know what Ian McGillicrist thought of this. I think one of the one of the reasons I'm a huge um, Zoom fan and video conferencing fan is that before we had the pandemic and we had video conferencing, too much exchange was textual. Right. Okay. There's a huge. If you think about it, conversation is probably human face-to-face -face conversation is. Well, you know. I mean, you could argue it's kind of millions of years old if you go back to kind of primates, but it's definitely hundreds of thousands of years old. Reading is about seven thousand years old. It's yeah. you know, and everyone reading is about hundred years old. It's a very similar thing to dogs. Uh, the human domestication of dogs happened like hundred thousand years ago, and cats is like four thousand years ago. Right. That's why you get greater variety. But there is an argument that dogs actually selected for humans. Because if a dog liked you, we've been bred by dogs just as much as dogs have been bred by humans. Because if a dog liked you, it conferred a huge advantage on you for survival purposes. Of course, yeah. Because human plus dog is kind is of that like why in I Am Legend he has a dog? Well, there's an argument. There's a really extreme argument, which I don't know where it comes from, but somebody mentioned that their wife at the University of Bath was involved in this theory, that humans at their worst, their lowest ebb of human population, it, the population was down to about 8,000 breeding pairs sometime during the Ice Age. And the theory was that the people who survived were the people who domesticated dogs. Wow. And because, you know, if you think about the combinatorial advantage of human plus dog as a hunting machine, plus warmth, all those kind of things, ability to make fire, cook food, etc. It's an unbelievable bit of symbiosis. That's amazing. Um, but in, the, in a way, I think going back to open-ended conversation and away from like PowerPoint and writing, apart from the else, we can speak much, much faster than we can write. Yep. Okay. So writing obviously makes sense if you're dealing with an audience of thousands because you can read faster than you can listen. Yeah. 
Okay, so there is an advantage to the consumer in reading things, but in writing things. And then what was happening, I think, before Zoom came along. This is, again, the whole question about the, the, the parts of the whole. It seems really efficient sending an email. You get something off your back, you press send, it's gone, it doesn't cost you anything, it's instantaneous. Okay, But if you think of a, a conversation where you're clearing up where you're going to meet in a pub one evening, okay, if you do it over the phone or by Zoom, okay, you arrive at a conclusion within about four minutes. I can't do Wednesday, what about so-and-so? I don't know, the crown's closed, let's go there. On email, is on email, it will be it will literally stretch out over days. Yes, you know there are whole things which are a living nightmare, like conveyancing and moving house in the UK, because everything happens sequentially, okay, rather than simultaneously. And by bringing back what you might call synchronous decision making and synchronous conversation, yeah. now this is one thing that really fascinates me, right? Okay. So you get these businesses and you get articles in the Telegraph and the Times where it says, everybody must get back into the office. This working from home thing is a fucking disgrace. You know, I can't imagine it. Uh, you know, I mean, someone was, someone, I won't name them, but quite senior in this organisation, was driven practically insane because the chief executive of Sainsbury's told them that Friday is their new Saturday. And of course, this person is suddenly thinking all my staff where they're supposed to be working are going shopping. Well, actually, the truth is they probably are but maybe they started work an hour and a half earlier in the day and they're going to work in the evening. Yeah. So actually going off to shop in the middle of the day isn't a daft use of your time if all you're going to do is email stuff anyway. But here's the thing that strikes me. There's unbelievable what you might call puritanism bias in this, which is that businesses have introduced loads of things which are real productivity killers, like email, for example. Really, really, you know, the fact that people don't have multiple screens, the fact that you have hot desking, the fact that nobody has an office, open plan offices, all these things have been introduced, which are empirically really disastrous for productivity. But no one cared because the employees didn't like them. OK, but then you come up with flexible working. OK, which employees actually enjoy. And suddenly there's this, oh, no, this can't be allowed to happen. Yeah, that, that literally is evidence of people going, I don't know whether my people are productive or not, but if they're happy, I'm probably doing something wrong. Yeah. That is literally yeah. the most extraordinary zero-sum thinking you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Because you know, nobody cared about flat hot desking because staff didn't like it. Nobody cared about getting rid of offices. Staff didn't like it. Nobody cared about email suddenly came on because everybody's really busy with their email. The yeah. fact that they're being totally ineffectual doesn't really matter. No, staff don't really like email, so that's fine. We'll just introduce this. The second you then introduce a potential productivity booster which saves you a fortune and the staff really enjoy, it's treated with massive suspicion. Yeah. That's absurd. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's how like saying these car that. things, they're terrible. Yes. Because people know, prefer them to walking. Yeah. We must get rid of this car yeah. thing because, look, people won't walk anymore. But there's, you know. there's that, I, I remember, well, thinking about being at very early primary school, it's kind of insane that we start people at five, six years old and say, sit down for 15 years. No, yeah. and in Finland, you don't start. They have huge rates of literacy. Yeah. Uh, unbelievably high rates of general readership in Finland. And they start at seven, I think, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, then, but there's this... Oh, sorry, bloody phone's going. I will just have to... Hi, can I call you back in about 20 minutes? The chief exec of Coca-Cola. <laughs> Where are you now? 15. Cool. OK, I'll, I'll be leaving in about 25 minutes, 30 minutes, I think. Excellent. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lots of love. Bye-bye.
Mrs. Sutherland. Yeah, Mrs. S. Yeah. <laughs> She'd probably, you know, accuse me of being insensitive again. Yeah. We'll have that as the little coming up trailer at the we, beginning of the we episode. Have, I can't wait to retire because I, 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 um, uh, there are various really, really mischievous things I want to introduce, which I don't believe, but they're worth, it's rather like comedy, they're, they're worth saying just because there's a bit of truth in them. And, um, uh, no, I, I was always saying about the, the, relative, uh, the relative work done by men and women in the household, and you always get these statistics saying, you know, 70% of domestic chores are performed by women. But I do find out that that's because if we try doing them, we're told we're doing it wrong. Okay? <laughs> this crap, by the way, do you do this business of separating whites and colours? What the fuck's all that about, right? <laughs> so if, I, I've been if, doing if it's mine, since day one. If it, okay, it's my shirt, it goes in the fucking washing machine. Yeah. If it's going to leak all over the bloody place, I don't want it. I'll chuck it out. You've right? said this about dishwasher safe stuff as well, right? It's like yeah. if it doesn't go in the dishwasher, I don't want. It. I don't want it. <laughs> no, it's it's by definition is dishwasher proof because my dishwasher will kill off everything that isn't dishwasher proof, yeah. and it's dishwasher Darwinism. Okay, everything <laughs> I own will be dishwasher proof if you put it all through the dishwasher, right? Yep. This whites and colours thing. What the fuck is that all about? You know, I'll finish my dubstep story because I forgot. Okay, dubstep. Yeah, yeah. But so, back to dubstep. <laughs> there was a YouTube documentary yeah. that was saying that the 2007 smoking ban changed the nature of DJ sets because before that you could find a spot in the room and smoke away if you were a smoker, and the DJ could take you on this journey that starts off soft at about 11 p.m., peaks at about 1 a.m. It's big energy, and then starts Got to it. take yeah. off after that. Yeah. So like, you can't do that anymore because everyone's dipping in and out for cigarettes all the time. So it has to be constant climb max all the time which has taken the sort of narrative shape out of it so there's your theory about smoking because are there <laughs> this this business okay where and this is what's really really interesting is the extent to which really trivial seemingly trivial apparently unrelated or tangential things have a massive bearing on what actually happens in something I mean, there's a whole theory about um uh, some forms of American music, which is there to do with the rhythm of the railway train. Interesting, that? yeah. Because yeah. the idea was that people would be spending a lot of time going da dump da dump da dump da dump and that actually, you know, the American railways had an effect on American music. I, right, yeah. I, I have read that quite seriously. And then, I mean, <laughs> by the way, um, we have uh, Hitler's uh, extremely... Uh, strongly held anti-smoking views yes. to thank for the fact that the Germans lost World War II because <laughs> Hitler had two real peculiarities apparently when he was in this bunker in, it's in what is now Poland, um, the, 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 what was it, the Wolf's Lair or whatever it was called. Um, we have two cafes here. One of them's on the ground floor, and the other one's right at the top. And I wanted to call the wolf's lair and the eagle's nest. I but for some reason, people thought that was politically <laughs> incorrect. But but um, the um, but but when he was in this bunker, the two things were he was obsessed with really low temperature, and so the place was literally it was sort of I'll try and do I won't do centigrade. I'll do, it was like fifty degrees. Yep. Okay. And secondly, there was a complete smoking ban. Okay, in the in the kind of map room. And so you had all these incredibly hateful German generals who spent most of the time standing outside having a tab yeah. and trying to warm themselves like he, like, like he was a rave. <laughs> Meanwhile, he was indoors on his own, yeah. basically going, oh, uh, let's not bother with Moscow. We'll turn to <laughs> Stalingrad. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean... The, the, Churchill would allow cigars. I don't, no, no, no. I don't, I don't think there was any non-smoking or indeed non-drinking. I don't think <laughs> there were many impositions on uh, drink or smoking in the... Uh, in, in, in the cabinet war rooms, yeah. I imagine they were pretty happy tabbing away. But no, it is it is funny how these extraordinary things come along, which are oblique. And I kept and, and one of the reasons I think we're slow to pick up the importance is that 
we're not calibrated yet to see their overall effects. So one of the one of the questions I keep asking, I asked this of the great people at Procter and Gamble two days ago in Switzerland. I said, you're having a debate about flexible working, okay? And the whole discussion revolves around do we want our staff to work flexibly because, you know, they might be two percent less productive or we might lose serendipity. I said, there's actually a much bigger question here, which is do you want your customers or your consumers to be able to work flexibly? Because if you allow over 5, 10, 15 years a degree of flexible working, people can live where they want. They can spend much less of their disposable income on transport and less of their disposable income on housing and accommodation. So, I mean, one of the things you can do, OK, you're based in Manchester. We've had, what, four Zoom calls for every physical meeting, yes. OK? And... You know, we probably wouldn't have had the physical meeting without the Zoom calls. So you can, you know, the need for you to move to, I know Chris Williamson's moved to Austin, Texas, but the need for you to move to London is trivial now. It's pointless, right? Whereas, let's be honest, you know, 10 years ago, you know, you probably had to move to London if you wanted to do what you did. Well, uh, someone was saying to me the other day, they st they were still saying from BBC Creative, they're saying you still have to be in London to have those moments where you're in 750 MPH with Sam Ashwell, who can turn around and say, there's an industry party tonight and all the agencies are going. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then they all climb in together and then that's where deals are sometimes done. What we actually need is micro-housing in London right. so people can spend a large part of their time somewhere else. I would I would, I would, adore I'd, I'd buy a micro-house in London like a shop. I've got, I've got a small, uh, well, not that small, small flat in Deal, slightly larger flat near Seven Oaks. Yep. The only property I'd ever buy in London would literally be like a micro hotel room. Yeah. You know, microwave, toilet, shower, bit of a telly. Somewhere to stay. Someone to crash. You know, I want, also, why do you want a big house in London? Because what's the point of being in London if you're going to be out indoors? I yeah. mean, you know, and all these people digging down and building a cinema room and a pool. As someone said in The Spectator, look, if you want a pool and a cinema room, that's what Surrey is for. Yeah, exactly. Right? Don't, you know, don't try to build it into some Chelsea bloody, you know, terraced house. It's what do you think is going to happen in this city with, I mean, generally in cities in the West, you know, the uh, there was some stat that came out recently where it's like, you can, there is no minimum wage job that can afford you a, a, like a one bed apartment in the US anymore or something like well, that. Well, you have the situation. Okay, this is one of my politically correct things. I've got to be really careful here, okay? Um, what we didn't realise was that the dual-income family went from being an option to an obligation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, okay, I've got to be really careful here because people are getting... What, what Rory's saying is that you know, women should get back in the house, I know exactly. in the kitchen. I'm not saying that. The two people who introduced me to this concept are both women and both of unimpeachable, I think, feminist credentials. They're Elizabeth Warren, the, yeah, the Democratic... Yeah. Uh, I, I'm right of centre in the UK. I can never understand. I thought Elizabeth Warren was brilliant. Yeah. But for some reason, Americans, Pocahontas, as Trump called it, Americans didn't warm to her at that was, all. That was a bit of a But gap, I always yeah. thought she was absolutely fascinating. She made this point, because she wrote a paper, I think, called The Double Income Trap. Yeah. The other person who I do know who used to talk about it a lot was Faye Weldon, right. who said it was a brilliant option when it first came along and it was fantastic for her, but it went from being an option now where if you are single, you cannot buy a house, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I've got friends who are single. There was someone in Canary Wharf who rents, who is a hospital consultant, okay, wow, wow. who cannot buy a flat. Right? right, because now you even get further absurdity, which is if you go to Newcastle, I could, my daughter was at Newcastle University, and the student area of Newcastle is Chesmond, which is like the Knightsbridge of bloody Newcastle. Right. And you realise that four students 
can outbid a family. Yes, you said okay? about your old office, didn't you? And, yeah. yeah, so we were outbid. We were outbid. We, we couldn't move to the original office building because they decided they didn't want it to be offices for the fourth largest ad agency in Britain. They'd, rather have, student They'd rather have students in there. Yeah. I'm getting, so effectively, your ability to share property and, and combine income, it's gone from being an option, which is, hey, that's great, we can get a second income in and we can, get, we can save a bit of money and buy a better house, yeah. to if you want a house, forget about it unless you both work. Yeah. And as a consequence, okay, now, when I was a kid, and you know, I'm in the Welsh borders, a working class guy could support a family yeah. on one salary. You see okay? this ironically in Friedman's documentary, watch that on YouTube, about, you know, uh, work efficiency in New York in the 1970s. Well, one of the things it destroyed, interestingly, was labour force mobility. Because in America in the 50s, guy in New York who got an offer of, you know, a better job in California... Off you went, right? Yep. Now, both of you have to find a job in the new place. The only place where both of you can maximise opportunity is in the middle of a mega city, a New York, a Los Angeles, you know, maybe a Chicago. Mm -hmm. So it's much more difficult to live in a suburban place or to say, you know, a single guy can move to Newcastle and actually have a much better life because yep. even if he's paid less, he actually gets a house to live in and yep. stuff, right? Very, very difficult for two people to move simultaneously. You've really got to synchronise that. Elizabeth Warren's piece, she makes the interesting point, which never occurred to me. But it's actually not bad financial advice, okay? Now, I shouldn't say this, but she said, don't go and buy the most expensive house you can afford, okay? Buy a cheaper house and spend your money on, well, she doesn't say this literally, like hot tubs and Versace hats and extravagances. Yeah. Okay, well, that's terrible financial advice, isn't it? And she said, no, Elizabeth Warren, she said, because if you hit financial uh, financial rocky patch, you can stop heating the hot tub and you can stop buying the Versace underpants, but you're stuck with your house. Right. You're stuck with your mortgage. And I thought it's just a really interesting take, which is, I've never thought of that, which is that extravagance does give you optionality. Okay, whereas whereas property is a massive great commitment. Yes, which is actually a kind of albatross around your neck. I mean, our, our, the family advice for us was always buying a, a small house in a good area. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad advice. But I mean, it's a, by the way, I don't think it's even legal to build micro houses in London unless it's student accommodation. Okay. Well, there are a load of people who actually what they'd like to do is move out of London to somewhere more sizable with a bit of space and then keep a foothold in London with what is effectively a tiny house. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think they you're all allowed to. You're, I don't think you're allowed to build them. That's all I'd buy. Yeah. I don't see. You know, if I'm going to be in London, I'm going to do London things. I'm not going to pace around my library or drawing room, right? Yeah. I'm going to be out doing London things. Yes. So all I need is basically a crash pad, and yet you're not allowed to build them. And frankly, that's probably all people will be able to afford in cities like New York. And well, London, it's yeah. worse still because the property market. Uh, the new build market is optimised for two-bedroom apartments because they're great for buy-to-let investment, yep. okay? Um, and they're also great for overseas buyers, okay? They're terrible for a family. You can't actually, once you're in a two-bedroom apartment, if you have two children of two different genders, you've basically got to move out. Wow. So when you think about it, the whole what's being built is optimised not for the inhabitants of London. It's being optimised for rent-seeking investors, really. And I suppose we'll have to pick up on the decline of sort of family building in people my age, but that that seems like a symptom I of mean, it. Well, th there is a solution, which is you create a re you create a suburb, okay, with suburban housing, but you don't let people over thirty-five move there. 
And so you create a really... Okay, I'll let you into, I think, a bit of a secret, which is one of the reasons Brits love moving to Los Angeles, right, is you can live in suburbia, but it's still cool. Yeah. Okay. Because new, new Los Angeles accommodation housing is suburban, well, right? Richard Burton said okay. endless suburb. Endless suburb. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And actually, no one thinks it's uncool to move to Los Angeles and go and, you know, move into sort of, you know, somewhere just off, um, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you, you move to Wonderland or, or the, that valley thing or whatever. Okay. Totally cool to live in a suburban house in Los Angeles with a pool. Okay. If you do that in Surrey, you know, or you do that in Connecticut, not very cool. No. And sorry, you get sort of eyes from the neighbours, wouldn't you? Mm, so, mm. Um, do you need us done, Anna? Yeah. What do I need to do next? Is there something? I'm going to go home. <laughs> this is as we said, didn't we? This is Rory's uh, left, do I have left break. This evening? Do I have a late thing this evening? Was that cancelled? There was something in the diary. That might be tomorrow. That might be tomorrow. I'll go and see. But um, this has been—I mean, it's been really. I mean, but that question of the dual income—it's—it's it's wonderful because it start—it's a fur-lined trap. Okay, it starts off as an option, and it's totally desirable because if you want to earn two incomes, you can. What's now happened? This is why I'm very sympathetic with the four-day week and flexible work. Is every single family has lost thirty-five hours of discretionary time a week? Okay, at the unit of the family, without really gaining in wealth at all. Who's gained? Government loves it because they get two lots of taxes rather than one. Yeah. Okay. Property owners love it because now your property price has gone up. Yeah. But effectively, most of the increase in earnings through having two earning two earning people in a household rather than one has been mopped up by property and transport costs, and the actual increase in, the, in your ability to make discretionary purchases has hardly improved at all. So it's a massive loss of discretionary time. Well, I suppose we'll have to end on a dark note then. That is a dark note. Pick this but, up next time. Don't shoot the messenger. It's Faye Weldon and Elizabeth Warren. Okay, right, we'll shoot I'm not. Then. I'm not suggesting we should reverse this. <laughs> yeah. Um, at all. Um, in fact, I think I go further as a feminist, as a really extreme feminist. I think men should stay at home entirely. You know, doing light household tasks and playing computer games, and being... while 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 their wives go off to run Goldman Sachs internationally. I like that would be my ideal solution. Okay. So you can't accuse me of any kind of. <laughs> we heard it here first, Rory Sutherland. <laughs> Everyone will be leaving on the mail side from Ogilvy tomorrow. Uh, Rory, thanks. Actually, yeah. there's one truth: really men are a lot better at doing nothing, are we? You want, you want do you someone to do nothing? <laughs> Is that fair? Yeah. You want someone to do nothing? You need a bloke. Thanks for listening to Having a Gas. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to smash the subscribe button. Please also check out the episode's sponsors. More about them in the description. If there's a guest you'd like us to invite onto the show, or if you have comments, questions, and suggestions, please let us know by going to our YouTube channel and let us know in the comments. There'll be a new episode of Having a Gas on the last Monday of every month, so do remember to subscribe. And there'll be shorter clips focusing on specific topics on YouTube. I've been Greg Owens, I'll continue to be Greg Owens, and this has been Having a Gas. Until next time, sayonara.